0: i
1: Five minutes after six a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. It's your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Another one of our nine days format days here at JM and the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network. It's a Thursday, and today we will continue with the series by Rabbi Barrel Wine entitled "The United States and Its Jews." This segment, this lecture in that series, is entitled "Orthodoxy." Here it is at JM and the AM.
2: There have been, in Jewish history, a number of waves of immigration, and Jews moving from one country to another. The Jews originally uh, went from Babylonia to North Africa, and then from North Africa, they went to Spain. They were in Spain a long time, 800 years. Uh, They were fairly numerous, they were quite influential and wealthy, and then they were expelled from Spain. When they were expelled from Spain, they went all over the world, basically in the Mediterranean basin, but really even to Eastern Europe. The Jews who lived in France were expelled, they moved to Germany, Uh, The Jews in Germany suffered, uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, terrible persecutions. So they continued to move eastward into Eastern Europe. And that was the situation uh, pretty much until the 18th century. A new continent was discovered, the American continent, and uh, the original settlers who came to the United to what later would be the United States and Canada were uh, originally Dutch, French, and then eventually the majority were English. In colonial times, the early 1700s, there were practically no Jews in the American colonies. There were Jews who came from the West Indies, the Caribbean, and they came because of business. They were traders, they were merchants. They were engaged in the sugar trade and other things. And those Jews uh, eventually settled on the southeastern coast of the United States. So they were, there was a Jewish community in Charleston, South Carolina, in Savannah, Georgia, in Jacksonville, Florida but there were no substantial Jewish communities. They were interesting people. Uh, Research has shown us that, for instance, Alexander Hamilton, the first uh, secretary of the Treasury of the United States, and whose picture appears on its currency, uh, was descended from uh, Jews in Jamaica though he himself uh, never was Jewish. There also were Jews who came to New York. Those were Dutch Jews who worked for the Dutch East India Company. New York for a period of time was governed by Holland, and uh, Peter Stuyvesant was the governor of New York, and he was very anti-Jewish and he attempted to ban the Jews from living in New York. <clears throat> Since the Dutch East India Company was heavily financed by Jewish financiers, uh, they saw to it that he was removed from office. And uh, even though in New York City till today has Dutch origins, you know, Harlem was a Dutch name, The Van Wyck Expressway, which uh, is everything but, (laughs) and uh, other uh, remembrances of uh, Dutch presence in the country. It was the English that took over. And as the colonies developed, uh, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, there was a trickling of Jews who came to settle in the United States. Overwhelmingly Sephardic Jews who were merchants and traders, again, connected to the West Indies and connected to the trading centers in Europe, London, and Amsterdam. But there was no major Jewish substance, major Jewish community. Now that these uh, Jews established synagogues and they established uh, cemeteries. In the heart of New York is an old Jewish cemetery <coughs> from the 1700s. Just to show you how uh, sensitive or insensitive uh, it's located in a uh, very, very uh, desirable area. So there was a developer that proposed that he was gonna build a high rise over the cemetery and he would raise the high rise so that it wasn't, direct, so there was space between the cemetery and between where the building began. And uh, he was opposed by the Landmark Commission, uh, but the Jewish community in New York thought it was a pretty good idea. It never happened, but uh, that's one of the landmarks of Jewish presence in New York in colonial times. 1776 is the Declaration of Independence. Uh, The colonies break off from England after a long and bitter war. Uh, The United States of America comes into being. Now, the Jews who lived during the Revolutionary War, 50% of them were patriots, so to speak, on the side of the Americans. 50% of them were loyalists who were on the side of England. After the war was over, uh, the American patriots forced all the loyalists out of the country. Many went to Canada (coughs) Uh, But most went back to England, and uh, there was a very small Jewish community. Now the Jews always wanted to portray themselves as patriots, Uh, so therefore they uh, fostered a legend about Chaim Solomon, who was a Sephardic Jew, and that he somehow bankrolled Washington's army and there's a statue to that effect of Washington and Solomon, and the Jews always were happy with it because it proved that they were on the winning side. But again, you have a very small Jewish community, Sephardic, you have the Spanish-Portuguese congregation in New York, but uh, there's no major Jewish presence. Since there's no major Jewish presence, there's very little anti-Semitism. And not only that, uh, the American government was founded on the basis of freedom from religion and equality of its citizens, even though uh, the Afro-American citizens were kept as slaves. But the goals were noble. And uh, America uh, was not seen by the Jews in Europe as a place to go to live. The legends about America was that it was a wild place, a lawless place. You had the indigenous people who were violent, and uh, to a great extent, therefore, uh, the people who emigrated to the United States were uh, let's move it up. That's a, It's banging on the table. Oh, the people who moved to the United States were uh, of the lower class, people that ran away, and they helped form the country. But there is again no Jew, not. It was a Jewish admiral in 1812. Uriah Levy was his name. He was an antif- one of the uh, first admirals in the United States Navy. He fought against the British in uh, the War of 1812. His family later bought Thomas Jefferson's home in Monticello, Virginia. And there's a Jewish cemetery in the backyard of Thomas Jefferson's home. The Levy family. So... uh, The United States does not have a Jewish problem. And it remained that way until the, towards the end of the 1840s. Then there were revolutions in Europe. Revolutions against the monarchies. Revolutions against the government. It became very unstable. And this brought about the first wave of major immigration of Jews to the United States. And these Jews were from Germany. And they were Reform, And they came and they settled mainly, the German uh, uh, immigrants uh, settled mainly in Ohio near Cincinnati. In fact, in the American history, that was called the Rhineland. And uh, the Jew- German Jews came there also. And as I mentioned, the German Jews were reformed. And they were the reform of the 1800s, not today's reform. And the reform of the 1800s uh, was out to sever all ties with Judaism in effect to assimilate as rapidly as possible into the general population. So therefore Cincinnati became the home of reform Judaism in the United States. Hebrew Union College was established in Cincinnati and there was a Reform rabbi by the name of Isaac Mayer Wise who came to the United States he was a radical reformer in Germany he was such a radical reformer that his congregation uh, drove him out and he came to America and he was the one that established uh, reform in the United States so we have here for the first time in Jewish history that the basic infrastructure for the exile of of Jews coming to a country was completely non-traditional, anti-traditional. So he established uh, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, uh, Central Conference of American Rabbis, and uh, they adopted what they called was the Pittsburgh platform. They had a convention in Pittsburgh And the Pittsburgh platform said, no Hebrew, no Sabbath, no dietary laws, nothing. And it said, basically, no Jerusalem, no land of Israel, forget it. And uh, this was the Jewish community uh, at the time of the American Civil War. Now, the German Jews were very successful in two areas. They became uh, Wall Street, Kuhn Loeb, other such uh, uh, companies, uh, later Lehman Brothers, uh, etc. These were all German Jewish financial institutions that made a fortune in the Civil War and rose to prominence and rose to great wealth and therefore also rose to influence. In the Civil War, because of uh, the fact that there was now Jewish money, so to speak, on the table, anti-Semitism increased. Uh, The Jews in the South fought on behalf of the South. The Jews in the North fought on behalf of the Jews in the North now the american army then uh, a lot of the supplies uh, because it's a civil war were brought from home it wasn't so therefore they allowed uh, all sorts of peddlers and other people to come to visit the troops and sell them things many of these peddlers were these German Jews, so we had a famous order issued by uh, General Ulysses Grant that banned specifically all Jewish peddlers from the Union lines. Lincoln canceled the order and told Grant never to do that again. Now, Grant was not an anti-Semite. Uh, When he became the president, uh, he appointed the first Jewish cabinet minister, Oscar Strauss, and he had many Jewish friends. The, The Jewish bankers supported him. But the stereotype of the Jew was fixed in American society. The stereotype of the Jew was money, peddlers, who are not really loyal to anybody. And because reform was so radical against Judaism, the Christians also saw it as being radical against Christianity. Because Christianity was based, and still is, it's based on Judaism, it's based on the land of Israel, it's based on Jerusalem. It's based on the Sabbath. And here you have this uh, so-called religious group that says all it is is nonsense. So uh, there developed a uh, genteel anti-Semitism in America. Now, we, we can read of this. There's a book by Stephen Birmingham called Our Crowd, which is the story of the German Jews, Zeligman Baer and all of them in the 1850s, '60s, '70s, and how they made their own circle in New York. And they formed what became the federations. They created the federated charities of the city of New York. And through the federations, through these charities, they, so to speak, controlled Jewish life. And because the money was always there, and the influence was always there, so that's what American Jewry was in the eyes of the American people. Birmingham's book is an excellent book. about uh, the times. In 1871, the Tsar Alexander I was assassinated. The Tsar was a despot and the author of terrible anti-Jewish decrees. Those who assassinated him were anarchists, Socialists, communists, and all of those groups had a disproportionate amount of Jews that belonged to them. There are many reasons, understandable. The persecution of the Jews was number one. Got to get rid of the Tsaris destroying the Jews. Uh, but uh, also because these are all utopian groups. They all promise that we're going to have the better world. They're going to bring about uh, the, uh, the dream of the ages, and that always appeals to Jews. The more utopian you are, the better your reception will be amongst the Jews. Now, this stems from our messianic beliefs, and it stems also from the way uh, traditionally we have always thought how the world should be. The world should be equal, fair, good, everybody should have everything, you know. Wonderful. Now, Desire was assassinated, he was succeeded by Alexander II. Alexander II looked at the situation and he said, we have to reform the situation. So he took away many of the decrees against the Jews. He lightened the load on the peasants, the serfs. He attempted to drag Russia, as Churchill said, screaming and kicking into the modern era but he died at an early age and he was succeeded by his son who uh, would eventually preside over the destruction of uh, Russia and of the Romanovs. Starting in 1870 and continuing unabated for 55 years, you have a tremendous wave of emigration of Jews from Eastern and Central Europe to the United States. Uh, Sholem Aleichem had an essay in which he said the word America was magic. The moment you said America, was, it was magic in the Jewish world. America was going to be the escape from everything that was wrong in Europe. And therefore you have uh, an emigration of uh, two and a half, two and three quarter million Jews to the United States in a short period of time. Now these are different Jews. These are not reformed Jews. They're traditional Jews. They're not very scholarly. But they, uh, so they spoke Yiddish, and they uh, built synagogues, but they never built schools. I remember my neighborhood in Chicago, and I was growing up at the end of the immigrant era, uh, so we had 42 Orthodox synagogues within uh, one neighborhood. And I'm not talking Shtiblach or Hausminionim. I'm talking about buildings with great Rabbonim, with hundreds of people every Sabbath. But there was not one Jewish school. And you didn't have to be a genius to figure out what's going to happen. Now this great wave of immigration, New York absorbed a million and a half Jews, other major cities in the United States. So all of a sudden, it was an enormous bulk of Jews. And these Jews were obviously, you know, the German Jews were uh, polite, genteel, well-mannered. One could not say the same for the Jews that came from the shtetl. I remember in my father's synagogue there was uh, an item of furniture called the spittoon. And people went and spat in it or blew their nose in it which is not very conducive to American culture so the Jews were looked upon as backward primitive they didn't speak the language and if they spoke the language it was with a heavy accent now all of us can uh, relate to this because we all here in Israel are also immigrants and we know what it feels like when you try to speak Hebrew to somebody And even though my Hebrew is perfect, they don't seem to think so. (laughs) And you had other ethnic groups that came. You had a few million that came from Italy. You had Irish. You had vast waves of immigration, because America then was an open country. And America wanted the immigration because it wanted to become a continental power, push all the way to the Pacific, drive out the indigenous people. So you needed people, you needed population. The ethnic groups always warred with each other because they were at the bottom of the ladder, the rungs of the ladder. They were fighting for the same low jobs. For the same tenement apartment. So you, you developed uh, an anti-Jewish uh, atmosphere from above and from below. Now the reform that controlled the federations created institutions on behalf of the immigrants. There was something called Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And there were settlement houses. There were uh, afternoon schools. All of which the purpose was to strip them away from their Jewish roots and to try and assimilate them as quickly and as efficiently as possible into American society. On top of it, the American public school system then was built on the principle of being the melting pot. The melting pot meant that you threw everybody in, but out of it would come a unified society. So the American public school system which was mainly staffed by uh, Protestant spinster teachers and had as its goal the complete assimilation of the students into what they determined would be American society. And therefore, uh, the Jewish children didn't stand a chance because of the fact that that was like the only the only ball game in town, the only thing you could do. And all sorts of pressures existed uh, to assimilate. Now Rabbi Tversky, uh, my friend, had a wonderful one-line description of that time. He said the immigrant generation of Jews to America wanted to give to their children what they did not have, meaning money, education, opportunity, respect, but he said they forgot to give them what they did have. And that evaporated. So, uh, the process of integration, the process of assimilation was from the first day onwards. On top of it, we had all sorts of other problems that destroyed it. There was a six-day work week. You didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. So, for the majority of American Jews, it was impossible to be a Sabbath observer. I always tell the story about my father's synagogue, that they had the two very large services on the Shabbat morning. First one was six in the morning. So there were seven hundred and fifty men that came. And they prayed they heard the Torah reading and then they all got on the trolley and went to work the second service was somewhat smaller those were people that somehow didn't go to work or didn't go to work that early in the morning but if you didn't go to work then how are you going to feed your family and that was a uh terrible test that most American Jews were unable to pass, unable to weather that storm. Once the Sabbath was gone, then everything else was doomed to follow. On top of it, coming to America with the Jews, as part of the Jews, were all of the Jewish anarchists, communists, and socialists who were now driven out of Russia. And they came to America, and they remained. And in fact, they became even more vehemently anarchists, socialists, communists, radicals. And they created a culture. Now, there's another book that I think that's worthy of your attention. It's called The World of Our Fathers. It was written by Irving Howe. Irving Howe, a socialist Jew, a professor, very well-written book. You read the the book must be 400 pages and describes everything that went on in the immigrant generation. There is almost no mention of synagogues, Torah, or observance in the whole 400 pages. It's all about the workers' unions and the Jewish theater and the culture, but there's almost nothing about being Jewish in the book. And when he was asked why he wrote a book that, so to speak, was so blatantly uh, absent of uh, the other part of the Jewish story, he said he never knew the Jewish story. That's, that's the world that he grew up in. And uh, it was a whole culture of Yiddish. Yiddish was going to be the hallmark of American Jewry. So there were Shalom Aleichem schools and Yud-Lamit schools, all of which had nothing to do with Judaism and would not, uh, would not survive uh, uh, to the modern era. But that's where all the effort was. That's where all the excitement was, and that's where everybody said that's what it's going to be. And there were other phenomena in American Jewish life. One of the great phenomena was that the Jews created the motion picture industry. Beginning in the very early 1900s. It was created by immigrant Jews. There was such a thing as uh, the Nickelodeon in that day. Very primitive and then they developed it and they made movies. And they moved out to Hollywood. And they created the motion picture. Now, the motion picture was an enormous cultural tool. It influenced everyone in the United States and may still do so. And these immigrant Jews were determined to create an ideal America. And to create an ideal America They had to crush any Jewish observance or ideas. So uh, it's not an accident of uh, fate that the first sound movie in the United States, The Jazz Singer, uh, starred Al Jolson in an autobiographical uh, role, as the son of a religious family, a cantor, and that he himself becomes a popular singer, but that uh, he marries out of the faith, but that he nevertheless is accepted by the synagogue, and he uh, performs Kol Nidre in front of everybody in the synagogue but his wife, with his non-Jewish wife present. And that was America that's what America was going to be. It was accepted. And the Jews created this image. They created this image and they created a utopian America. An America where uh, it's home on the range, everything is beautiful. Later they would reverse the whole thing and create what in their mind was a disgusting America. But this had a tremendous effect. Now you have to realize uh, every family went to the movies. The movies cost a nickel, five cents, so you went to the movies. And you saw two movies, and it was was hot, so the movies at least were air-conditioned, so you stayed maybe for a third movie. And it all had an effect, had a great effect. And the effect was to build up in the mind of the next generation that somehow to be a success in America, to survive in America, you had to give up your Judaism. You could not combine the two. It could not happen. Now, there were attempts uh, to swim against this. Uh, the major yeshiva in America then was Rabbi Yitzchok Seminary in New York. REITs, which wanted to produce uh, American-trained, English-speaking rabbis, but who would be loyal and faithful to tradition. But you had this conflict which never was resolved, that you had the older European-born rabbis. They were a powerful, large organization called the uh, Union of the Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada, who were all European-born. Almost none of them spoke English. And uh, when, uh, for instance, the so-called modern Orthodox rabbi came came into being, uh, that rabbi was not accepted as being a real rabbi. They were clean-shaven. They spoke their sermons in English. Uh, The older rabbis held them to be inferior in Jewish scholarship, in Talmud. And uh, you had this rift. The older rabbis would eventually leave the scene. But they left over a legacy of this internal conflict within orthodoxy itself of the uh, mindset that we're not going to accept certain people because they're not like us. In 1898, there was an attempt by a Svartic rabbi in New York to create an institution that would produce American-trained rabbis who had preserved the tradition of Judaism. It was called the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And as its head, there was a man who uh, was world-famous, Solomon Schechter, because he was the great expert on the Cairo Geniza. There was a great Geniza in Cairo that was discovered in the 1870s, and the Geniza is fascinating. It has uh, original documents of Maimonides, it has grocery lists, it has report cards, it's a window into uh, 10th, 11th, uh, early and earlier centuries of Jewish life in Egypt. And it also had manuscripts that we did not know existed or that we did not have any originals to compare it to. And now it existed. And he spent like 25 years and he restored 42,000 of these pieces of paper, parchments, And he was financed by two Scottish Protestant spinsters from Cambridge University. And that's how he made his reputation. And he had a tremendous reputation to being a Jewish biblical scholar. He himself was personally observant. So when this seminary uh, began, so first of all, the uh, Orthodox establishment, the European rabbis uh, immediately discounted it because they said that's not a yeshiva. So their their recollection of a yeshiva was uh, Slabotka and uh, Valozhin. So uh, Schechter came. And when he came, he had a very uh, cool reception. He was not treated... Uh, in the fashion that he felt that his scholarship deserved. And in any event, the uh, German financiers on Wall Street who were all Reform, one of them had a son-in-law by the name of Jacob Schiff. Now, Jacob Schiff was a traditional Jew. He was not Reform. But he was convinced that orthodoxy could not maintain itself in the United States. And he said to the seminary, I will finance you, but we have to create. And that was the birth of what today is called conservative Judaism, which somehow attempted to burn the candle at both ends to accommodate itself completely to American life and to somehow conserve Judaism in a meaningful fashion. Uh, Originally, you could not tell the difference between the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary and graduates of Orthodox institutions. In fact, many of the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary served as leading Orthodox rabbis in the world. For instance, Chief Rabbi Hertz in England was the uh, chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, was a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. But after a period of time, as always happens, Mm -hmm. It's very hard to maintain a uh, footing on the middle road. And uh, conservative Judaism then broke off and it became its own. And it said that it was between reform and orthodox, and it was the wave of the future of the American Jewish community. Now, conservative Judaism was not successful in spreading its message anywhere else except the United States and Canada. In the rest of the world, uh, it was Orthodox Judaism, and if you didn't, uh, weren't observant, you weren't observant, but that didn't affect your, the definition of Judaism. You didn't create, so to speak, a new type of Judaism to fit uh, your social needs. So that happened at the beginning. Another thing that happened, which, uh, when the Italians came, especially those from Sicily, they brought the mafia with them. That was their way of life. So you had this type of crime families that exerted uh, tremendous financial and even political pressure, especially in the city of New York, but in other cities as well. The Jews grew up side by side with the Italians. And therefore, a Jewish mafia also came into being. And the Jewish mafia for a long period of time was more powerful. And the most famous gangsters originally in the United States were Jews. I remember as a child, overhearing in my parents' home that my father complained to my mother. He said he had to conduct a funeral today. The funeral was for a Jewish mobster who was a member of the shul, and what was he going to say about him? I never knew what he was going to say about him, but uh, that was a symptom of the times. And so you had that the immigrant Jewish community had all sorts of labels to it. It had the label of money, peddlers, which later became Wall Street, which today in the United States when you hear uh, the, uh, the left talk about Wall Street, they're talking about Jews, they're not talking about Wall Street. The fact that many of them are Jews doesn't change that. Wall Street is a euphemism for Jews even though most of Wall Street has never been Jewish and is not Jewish. J.P. Morgan wasn't Jewish, and Rockefeller wasn't Jewish, and Henry Ford certainly wasn't Jewish. But that's a label, and labels uh, eventually stick. People are not sophisticated to really know what happened. And then you have the label that Jews are not religious, because look at reform. And then you have the label that Jews are leftist, communist, anarchists. And then you have the label that Jews are gangsters. So when you look back at it, it's miraculous that the the early Jews in the United States were not persecuted on the streets because everything negative in an American life was thrown and attributed to them. Now, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the President of the United States during the First World War, appointed the first Jew uh, as a member of the United States Supreme Court, I mean, Louis D. Brandeis. <laughs> Brandeis met with an enormous amount of anti Semitism on the court. There was a southern bigot on the court, McReynolds. In all the 25 years that Brandeis was on the court, he never spoke to him once. Harvard had no Jewish professors, but then somebody bought a seat or established a chair in Semitic studies. And uh, he, this uh, wealthy man, uh, they chose uh, Henry Austrin Wolfson, who was a graduate of Slobodka Yeshiva, and who was a well-known Semitic scholar to be the professor. He, uh, there are a number of books about him, and he himself wrote a book of essays. He is the author of the famous story, that uh, uh, one of the other professors at Harvard came up to him and said, what makes you people think you are so special? And Wolfson said to him, as far as I know, we're the only people who when we drop a book, picks it up and kisses it. But that was the atmosphere. And uh, the second and third generation of Jews who did not want to be tarred with those uh, labels and wanted to get ahead. They didn't want to live in tenements on the Lower East Side. (laughs) And the only way to get ahead was, they said, through education. And education meant college. It didn't mean just getting high school. Now, even high school was not then mandatory in the United States. Most Americans had a sixth or seventh grade education if elementary school, and that was it. Pretty much so today as well, even though they may attend colleges. <laughs> I remember when I uh, left the public school in seventh grade, I knew a lot. But high school was, wow, that was a level already. And college was uh, the top of the heap.
1: <laughs> J.M. and the A.M. with our barrel Wine, uh, a, a lecture that, frankly, we, we started our b- programming with, our nine days programming with yesterday, and because of a glitch, at least I think it's a glitch, Um, we ended up, uh, presenting it again this morning here at JM and the AM. So I apologize for that. Um, I apologize for that. You know what the problem is? I mean, just to let everyone in on a little secret, the problem is that, um, I am using a new laptop after 12 years of, um. There we go. After 12 years of the laptop that many of you have seen uh, at live broadcasts and in other situations, uh, I decided to uh, bite the bullet and and actually get a real laptop, or at least one that we could argue is in the 21st century. And I am still trying to figure out exactly how this is working. Um trying to figure it out hopefully hopefully we will figure it out soon <laughs> I can tell you that much that's my that's my hope is that we figure it out soon uh jm in the am hello hello and thanks for joining us oh maybe that's a good idea maybe I should just shut the entire thing and restart often that uh, seems to be a system that works and I think I will try that. Rabbi Beryl Wein's lectures, and right now we're in the midst of the series entitled The United States and Its Jews. His lectures are available at one 800 wein 1-800-499-WEIN. In addition, uh, you can go to the uh, website, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. He has thousands and thousands and thousands of incredible lectures on every topic imaginable. Tanakh to history to discussions to interviews it's it's just amazing uh so again go to a uh, rabbiwine.com Rabbi or you can uh, call 1-800-499-WEIN for uh, further information and again everything is available online in terms of the uh, library of great uh, offerings that are available. Also, keep in mind that our friends at Artscroll, and we've been uh, letting everyone know about this, our friends at Artscroll in commemoration of our amazing relationship with Rye Wine and how he has rightfully dominated our uh, nine days programming for the last many, many years. Uh, he um, th- All the Artscroll titles, all of Rye Barrel Wine's Artscroll titles are available at 15% off And free shipping if you use promo code RADIO. So go to artscroll.com. It's 15% off on all rabbi wine titles. It's 10% off on everything on the site across the board. And right now, make sure to pre-order the brand-new cookbook, Peas, Love, and Carrots, uh, by Danielle Renoff. We're going to be speaking with her on August the 4th about the brand-new book. If you've pre-ordered it by now, I don't know about today. Today, I can't guarantee it anymore. But if you've pre-ordered it before today, you'll have it in your hands before Tishabov. The brand new Peas, Love, and Carrots, Danielle Renoff. Um, Already, I I spoke to a reviewer early this morning uh, about the book. And already, it is getting incredible rave reviews from people who are really in the know when it comes to cooking, when it comes to cookbooks. So, Again, we speak with her August 4th, a Tuesday morning after Nachamu. And uh, I'm sure that uh, stores will be uh, anxiously trying to replenish their supply of her book. And I'm sure that uh, they'll be (laughs) printing them as fast as possible at the Arts Girl headquarters in New Jersey. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at a and Chables and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. The hot dogs available at every Trader Joe's nationwide. Check them out today. Galate Sal in the background. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Uh, we'll have a chance to speak to Steve Adelsberg. Tonight is baseball's opening day. I know, it's usually in April, but we'll do it today. 8 o'clock hour this morning at JMN. Galate Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next at JMN.
3: בלי צהל מירושלים השעה 2, שלום רב, כאן רני אבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. ועדת הקורונה בכנסת הכריע, האטרקציות התיירותיות יישארו פתוחות גם בסוף שבועה. הקניונים יסגרו מחר בחמש אחרי הצהריים עד ליום ראשון בבוקר. כתבנו יניר קוזין. הוועדה ישרה את פתיחת
4: הפעילויות התיירותיות בסוף השבוע, לדוגמה גני החיות, מוזיאונים, פינות חי, המצפה התת ימי באלת והרחבל בחרמון, כל אלה יישארו פתוחים גם בסופי השבוע. בעניין חדרי הכושר, הוועדה החליטה להותיר את הצו על סגירתם עד ליום ראשון, במטרה לקבל מתווה מן הממשלה. במידה ולא יגיע מתווה לוועדה, חדרי הכושר ייפתחו מיד בתחילת שבוע הבא.
3: שיתוף פעולה ישראלי הודי במאבק בקורונה, ישראל תעביר טכנולוגיה חדשנית לבתי החולים בהודו, כתובתי נעומדינית מוריה אסרף וולברג.
2: בזמן הקרוב ייצא מטוס ישראלי מיוחד להודו ובמשלחת של חוקרים ישראלים בכירים במטרה להגיע לטיפול פורץ דרך. במטוס יובה גם ציוב טכנולוגי רפואי חדשני וכן אמצעים
4: מתקדמים של רפואה מרחוק כמו רובוטים וחיישנים. לבקשתם של ההודים, ישראל תעביר גם
3: ההפגנות נגד ראש הממשלה, השר לביטחון הפנים, אמיר אוחנה, הנחה את המשטרה, בחנו את האפשרות להעתיק את ההפגנות מבלפור לעזורים אחרים, בהם לא מתגוררים תושבים. כתבתנו עדה שטייף.
5: בעקבות
4: הדיווח שלנו הבוקר, לפי ושר לביטחון הפנים, אמיר אוחנה, הורה המשטרה שלו, לאשר את ההפגנות צביב מעונו של ראש הממשלה וניבוד לחוק, השיב השר בהודעה, בנאמר, כי הוא לא הורא לאסור קיום הפגנות. עם זאת מאשר, כי הנחה את המשטרה כל דרך ולאמץ פרשנות של הדין, כך שהתאפשר לאזרחים לחזור לחיי שגרה. לטענתו, חיי השכנים הפחו גהנום והוא חייב להם מענה. אמש הם הגישו עתירה לבגץ בעניין.
3: בית משפט שלום בחיפה גזר שישה חודשי עבודות שירות ומעשר על תנאי על השחקן משה איבגי, שרושה בשתי העבירות של מעשה מגונה אל סט של סרט לפני שמונה שנים. השחקנית אנה סטפן שיתלוננה כי עברה התרדה מצד איבגי אך המקרה של העבר ישנות שוחחה עם מפי בן אברהם ביומן הצהריים
0: זה מאוד מאוד לא מפתיע אותי מה שקרה שם אולי מערכת המשפט לא תיתן לך צדק אבל אני מליחצי להאמר כי אני לא רודפת נקם לא רודפת צדק, אני לא רוצה לראות אותו יושב בכלא כלא לא יתקן אותו פשוט הבן אדם צריך לקחת אחריות וללכת לטיפול כי הוא תוקס סיברטי והוא מתוקן
3: מה מנהחדה של נבחרת ישראל, ווילי רוטנשטייןר מספר לאידן ק威尔ר ובוני גינסבורג בתוכניתנו סימספורט, הפתיתי שבחורובי. it wasn't in my mind, uh, but the committee decided
4: to stay on this uh, philosophy and to stay with Alon and me. and if you ask me, do you want to do it now and do you like it? 100% yes.
3: זה לא עלה בדעתי, אבל ועדת לבחור בי, חזן, עם הרוח של הקבוצה. אם תשאל אותי כעת, האם אני מעוניין לעשות את זה, והאם אני אוהב את זה, התשובה תהיה ב-100 percent כן. מזג האוויר למחר וגם לשבת ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות, אבל ביום ראשון ובכל השבוע הבא, שימו לב, עלייה ניכרת באומסי החום. אלה החדשות שאורך רואי ולד.
1: AM and the AM Thursday morning. We're continuing our nine days format. Uh, Rabbi Wine in just a moment. Um, also, um, we'll explore a brand new school that's opening up in this area later on in the seven o'clock hour and in the eight o'clock hour. As I said, Steve Edelsberg is going to call in. Uh, he's giving me he gave me a research project <laughs> for those people who uh, like baseball who are in our community. Tonight is opening day, so I know. Hard to believe that baseball is going to be back tonight. I predicted it would never come back, even after they announced it would. I would never come back for this season. I, I, it looks like I'm hours away from being wrong, and frankly, I'm glad I'm wrong. 74 degrees, mostly cloudy, afternoon thunderstorms, and a high of 92. The heat wave continues in this area on this Thursday, the second day of our nine days format. By the way, a couple of notes for next week. Ellie, as of now, as of now, we may switch days, but as of now, Ellie Beer, founder of United Hatzalah in Israel, a survivor of COVID, um, is uh, joining us Monday, 8 o'clock hour. Wednesday, Abe Foxman, the legend from the uh, Anti-Defamation League, very appropriate to speak with him on Erev Tisha B'av after what he went through as a youngster. Um, we will speak to him Wednesday, Erev Tisha B'av, on this show. Tomorrow, 7.15 Eastern Time, My father, we will broadcast my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe delivered on the 3rd of Av uh, at the Shloshim uh, 26 years ago. uh, Yeah, 26 years ago. Uh, So we will feature that tomorrow morning, 7.15 Eastern Time. And um, again, that will be uh, uh, tomorrow here at JM in the AM. Lots going on. Rabbi Barrel Wine. The series is entitled The United States and Its Jews. This lecture is entitled Orthodoxy at JM in the AM.
2: I think the uh, pivotal decades uh, regarding American Jewry occurred in the 1940s and 1950s. America in the 1930s was very isolationist. Uh, Roosevelt ran for a third term on the promise that he would keep America out of war. And in fact, uh, there's great doubt uh, that America would have entered the war under any circumstances if it were not for the effect that the Japanese attacked them at Pearl Harbor and that Hitler, for some strange reason, uh, when America only declared war on Japan, uh, Hitler declared war on the United States unilaterally three days later. Now, part of the uh, isolationist Uh, feeling in the country was that they didn't want to get involved in what they called the Jewish War. Hitler's anti-semitism, the uh, program that he announced that he would destroy European Jewry, as loathsome as it was for the United States to enter, uh, the majority of the American people, did not want to fight a war on behalf of saving European Jews. And they did not want to fight a war to save England or France. Uh, because they were very uh, disappointed at what happened after the First World War, when they felt that they had saved the Allies, and that everything just went back to business as usual. The, the empires restored themselves, etc. So America was very much out of it. And Jewish America then was hardly influential in any way whatsoever. It was influential, as I mentioned in the last lecture, which I'm certain you remember every word of, that uh, was influential in entertainment, in the radio, in the movies, and uh, somewhat in the financial world, but not in the political world at all. There was only uh, uh, one Jewish representative in the House of Representatives, Sal Bloom from New York, who was pretty much Jewish in name only. Uh, Roosevelt, however, in his cabinet had uh, his uh, friend from uh, upstate, from Hyde Park, New York, Henry Morgenthau, Jr., as his secretary of the Treasury. Morgenthau was a uh, A reformed Jew, uh, he was a very assimilated Jew. Uh, He did not seem to be overly interested in Jewish matters either. And therefore, uh, the Jewish community, uh, when the war broke out, So the war began in September 1939. By uh, the beginning of 1941, America is still not in the war. In September 1941, two years after the war started, America is still not in the war. But reports began to drift back as to what was happening in Poland, in the Baltic states, that the Germans were uh, destroying the Jewish community, and on the other hand, that the communists were destroying the Jewish community. And the Jews were caught in the vice between Hitler and Stalin, the two great murderers of the 20th century. And the Jews were, as I mentioned, uh, in the United States, uh, to a great extent, powerless. However, there were, uh, the New York Times was Jewish, other media's outlets were Jewish, but uh, they did not dwell upon the Jewish problem because of the fact that that was very dangerous for the Jews in the United States itself. There was a great deal of anti-Semitism in the United States and Jews had a low profile. Then the war breaks out, Japan attacks in 1941, and it becomes a patriotic war. Tens of thousands of Jews uh, enlist or are drafted into the United States Army. And uh, the uh, strategy was agreed upon that the first border of business would be the defeat of Germany before the defeat of Japan. By the end of 1942, when uh, Hitler had already invaded Russia, and conquered most of European Russia, he controlled uh, millions and millions of Jews. And in 1941, they had set up already the apparatus for the final solution, and they were going to exterminate all of European Jewry. The United States State Department was aware of that. Now, Jewish leaders in the United States also became aware of that. And they were faced with a terrible dilemma. Now, who were the Jewish leaders in the United States then? Well, Stephen Wise was an advisor to Roosevelt. He was a reform rabbi. Uh, other uh, Jews uh, were, uh, the establishment was reformed. The establishment was assimilationist, those who represented the Jewish people. And the Orthodox, even though they may have had to a certain extent, numbers on their side then had almost no influence. It was Yiddish-speaking rabbis. Uh, They were looked at as dinosaurs. So uh, in 1943, for instance, the uh, Union of Orthodox rabbis of the United States and Canada under the direction of Rabbi Eliezer Silver, who was the role in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, they were already privy to what was going on in Europe. They knew it. And they tried to influence the United States government to do something about it. Now, what the United States government could or could not have been done is a matter of debate until today. But the policy was that we're not going to bother with the Holocaust because that diverts attention and resources away from defeating Germany. The best way to deal with the Jewish... Uh, problem in Europe is to defeat Germany, and the sooner the better, and we can't spare anything, therefore, on behalf of the refugees or on behalf of the Jews in Europe. That was the official line, was the line of the State Department, Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, was an anti-Semite. Breckinridge, who was in, t- uh, in charge of the visa program, was an anti-Semite. America turned away uh, Jewish refugees that uh, attempted to come to America. They sent away the uh, St. Louis, uh, that boat, it had almost a 1,000 refugees, all of whom eventually perished. Uh, America was not forthcoming. <laughs> in uh, the month of Elul in 1943, the Agudu Sarabonim organized a demonstration of 300 rabbis, over 300 rabbis, who went to Washington and on the steps of uh, the Capitol uh, protested what was happening to the Jewish community in Eastern Europe, and who demanded that the United States do something. Uh, Roosevelt refused to meet with them. The one who did meet with them was Henry Morgenthau. And fascinatingly enough, uh, they made a great impression upon Morgenthau a reformed Jew all of these white-bearded Yiddish-speaking rabbis. And Morgenthau became interested in the Jewish cause. Uh, There was a rov in uh, in New York, Rabbi Kalmanowicz, who uh, represented the mirror yeshiva that was stuck in Shanghai It had escaped through Japan, and Rabbi Kalmanovitz somehow got into Morgenthau's office, and Rabbi Kalmanovitz, who was a great fundraiser, had the knack to faint upon will, which had an effect upon donors who were recalcitrant. And he uh, got a hold of Morgenthau. And he fainted for him, <laughs> and Morgenthau was shaken. And Morgenthau worked through uh, Roosevelt, and a refugee camp was established in upstate New York, where eventually uh, thirty thousand Jews were saved. Uh, because the Germans were corrupt, uh, as Eichmann proved later, and uh, there were uh, organizations, especially in Switzerland, Jewish organizations, that simply bribed and corrupted, and therefore uh, what amounts to a minuscule amount, but some Jews were able to be ransomed and escaped. In the overall picture, uh, the Americans did not bomb uh, the trains to Auschwitz, did not bomb the Auschwitz itself, even though they had aerial photographs of it. Uh, They were well aware, but again, the claim was that you could not be diverted from the main thrust of the war, which was to defeat uh, Germany and then to go on and defeat Japan. Part of the suspicion that still existed in America was that the Jews were basically communists. And uh, this was encouraged in the Second World War by the fact that Russia was an ally of the United States. And because of that, Uh, pro-Russian, pro-Communist propaganda uh, filtered through everywhere in the United States. I remember when I was in public school then, uh, we had uh, one Jewish teacher who uh, taught us uh, Russian Communist songs (laughs) as part of our patriotic effort to defeat Germany. And the Jewish community was under great suspicion. Later this suspicion became intense because when it was revealed that the uh, spies, the atomic spies were Jewish on behalf of the Soviet Union, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, The Jewish community did nothing to defend them because of that fear. And I don't know whether it could have been or should have been defended. And then uh, in the atomic program, Oppenheimer, Greenglass, etc., the Jewish scientists all lost their security clearances and were accused of being agents for the Soviet Union when after the war, three things happened uh, that affected the Jewish community greatly. First of all the horror of the Holocaust was revealed. Eisenhower called in all the army photographers to photograph and take movies of Bergen-Belsen. The horror was visible. It was undeniable the second thing that happened was the struggle f- to create the state of israel now american jewry rallied behind it, uh, it it's almost uh, unbelievable the amount of unity that was in the American Jewish community on behalf of the State of Israel. The Jewish mafia made a parlor meeting for Golda Mayor. And he went to a parlor meeting for the mafia, you know. He didn't say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you a check later. <laughs> and she walked out with a whole bunch of cash that she was able to buy arms. Not only buy arms, the mafia controlled the Longshoremen's Union in New York, and therefore they smuggled all the arms on ships that got to Palestine. And basically, that's how the Haganah and the Irgun had their weapons. So American Jewry was u- light, united on that. There were no calls then uh, against the, uh, the state not amongst the religious and not amongst the secular and not amongst anyone. And at that time, the Soviet Union also supported it. One of the anomalies of the situation is that the Soviet Union also supported it. So the Jewish communists were in it too. So you had a united Jewish community And uh, Roosevelt uh, conveniently died because had he lived, it probably never would've happened. And Truman succeeded him. And Truman had certain advisors who were not Jewish, but who were very pro-Israel, Clark Clifford and others, who felt that it was not only in the best interests of the Jewish people, but in the best interests of the United States to support it. And the State of Israel came into being, and uh, mainly because it was backed originally by the United States, even though the United States did not offer any material aid or officially send any arms. So that was the second thing that affected the Jews. The third thing that affected the Jews was a complete change in the demographics and the economic status of the Jewish people in the United States. During the war, a lot of people made a lot of money. Some legally, some in the gray area, some illegally, But a lot of people made money because there was rationing, so then how could you get around rationing, and there were a lot of things. And when the war ended, a lot of people had money, but it had nothing to do with the money because there had been no consumer goods uh, that uh, had been produced during the war. It was all uh, military goods. So now that the consumerism returned to the United States, uh, the Jewish community exploded. First thing they did is move out of the old Jewish neighborhoods. There was a migration of African-Americans from the south that had come north to get jobs, to work in the industrial plants, and the entire Jewish neighborhoods, within a uh, a year or two, uh, there had almost no Jews living there anymore. I remember Chicago, when the war ended, there were 42 Orthodox synagogues in the Lawndale area, and there were about uh, 80,000 Jews that lived there. Within five years, There only were about 10,000 Jews left, and there only were six synagogues left. And this was a great demographic change, because now the push to suburbia began. You didn't want to live in an apartment anymore. You wanted to have your own home. You wanted to have a garden, backyard. And uh, this developed, now, in order for uh, Torah Jews, observant Jews, uh, to have an infrastructure, they have to live, uh, relatively speaking, close to the Jewish institutions. You have to live close to the synagogue to go on Sabbath. You need uh, butcher shops, you need kosher, you need, uh, The suburbs were basically against all of that, because they were so spread out. It was almost impossible that uh, large numbers of Jews could walk to the synagogue. And therefore, because of this uh, social problem, uh, the uh, major break between the conservative movement in the United States and the orthodox took place. Until uh, probably 1948, 49, the conservative movement was basically orthodox light. Uh, They had deviations in the fact that men and women were not separated in the synagogue But the synagogue service was Orthodox, and most of the rabbis were observant Orthodox. The Jewish Theological Seminary, which trained the conservative rabbis, had an Orthodox faculty, and it itself was strictly Orthodox. The seminary always had separate seating, and the line was very blurred.
1: JM in the AM, we are in the middle of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on orthodoxy from the series entitled The United States and Its Jews, and we will continue, of course, in just a couple of minutes here at JM in the AM. Thursday morning, 74 degrees, clouds, thunderstorms later, and a high of 92, still in the middle of our heat wave here on this side of the world. Uh, 1-800-499-WEIN for information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, one 800 499-W-E-I-N. We encourage everybody to get information. And don't forget, all the Art Scroll titles uh, under the name Rabbi Beryl Wine are 15% off and free shipping this week in honor of our relationship with Rabbi Wine and his participation with us in the nine days format of JM and the AM. Uh, 15% off and free shipping on all Rabbi Beryl Wine titles at Artscroll.com if you use promo code RADIO. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishbas Arav of Alevi, and Lezekhonishbas Esther Basar Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good
6: morning. We read in Megillah Echa, Darche Tzion Abelus: The ways of Tzion are mourning. It has been translated, The roads of Tzion are in mourning. We find a very fascinating responsa in Desheilos Uchubas Mimamachim written by the great Rabbi Oshri. There it says that the Nazis not only desecrated the living, but also those that had passed on. They took the matzevos, the monuments, from the Beis Chaim, from the cemeteries, with the names and the praises of those that have passed on written on them, and used them to pave their roads. The question was then posed to Rabbi Oshri, Is one allowed to walk or to travel on those roads that are paved with the matzevas, with the monuments? The answer is that it is forbidden. The matzeva itself is something that is also ba'hana; It is prohibited to have any benefit from and would also constitute a bizayon or a disgrace to those that are not here in this world. The Yad Leo writes in his Chuvos that it is forbidden to use the matzevah, the monument, for any other reason, even to sell it or to exchange it for the need of a different mace. It would be usser unless there was a very pressing reason for it. The Mahasham writes that even if there was a very pressing reason, an individual would have to erase the names from the matzevah, take the names off the monument, in order not to cause that individual from any further bucho chlima, shame, and disgrace. It is therefore forbidden to ride in these streets or to walk in them and to cause a bizoyon or a disgrace, to those that are not here. In fact, it would be a great mitzvah if these matzevos could be returned to the cemetery, even if they couldn't be replaced on the proper graves, they should at least be put in a Mokom Shomor, in a place that is secure. The Sefer further says that even if it would cost a lot of money, they should take the Matzeves to the cemetery and put them in a special place. These monuments would be a Zecher. It would be a remembrance for the coming generations as an example of the great Rishus, the wickedness of these Rishoim. A number of years ago, I received a call from my good friend, Chaim Sirota. He asked me if I would be willing to travel together with him to Belarus because he has information that they took the matzevas, the monuments out of the Jewish cemetery, and used them to build a dam. He would like to go and pay divers to dismantle that old dam consisting of the Matzevas and replace them in the Jewish cemetery. He is to me a great inspiration, an example of what it means to have great respect and dignity, not only for the living, but also for those that have passed on. May their memory be a blessing. To all of Klael Yisroel. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizek. Have a nice day.
1: J.M. in the a.m. Thursday. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Um, uh, we will get back to uh, Rabbi Wein. And, of course, uh, he is the centerpiece of our nine days format. We'll get back to his lecture about orthodoxy in the series entitled The USA and the Jews uh, coming up here at JM in the a.m. Uh, there's big news. There is big news in the world of Jewish education in our area. Uh, and when um, and when the, Joe Rosazada, our wonderful friend Dr. Rosazada, told me months ago that there was an intention to open up a brand new boys' yeshiva high school in the tri-state area, uh, as anybody would be uh, when it comes to a project as magnanimous as that, uh, I was a bit skeptical. And even now, during these... Really challenging times, where you'd think it's even a greater challenge to open up a brand new school in September. Uh, sure enough, he, as chairman of the board, and uh, everybody who's involved, are full steam ahead on what is known as Orystreel uh, of Tenafly, New Jersey. It's a boys' yeshiva high school. Orystreel of Tenafly, New Jersey. Some familiar names who are with us live via telephone are uh, affiliated and are leading the school. First of all, the aforementioned Dr. Joe Rosazada. Joe, thanks so much for uh, joining us, and good morning.
5: Good morning, Nachum. How are you?
1: Baruch Hashem. And uh, you are joined uh, both in this effort <laughs> and in this phone conversation this morning uh, by the uh, uh, the people who are really responsible uh, for the uh, day-to-day at the brand-new R.U.S.R.L. of Flyer Rabbi Scott Friedman is the head of school. Rabbi Friedman, welcome back to JM in the AM.
4: Thank you. Good morning.
1: And the Menahel is someone uh, also very familiar to us in the world of Jewish education. Are also a wonderful friend, Rabbi Ustra Yablok, uh, who is the new uh, Menahel of the um, uh, of the uh, Yeshiva Or Yisrael of Tenafly, New Jersey. Rabbi Yablok, welcome to JM and the AM.
7: Thank you so much. Good morning, Nahum.
1: Uh Good morning. Great to have you all, uh, uh, Joe. I guess the best place is to start with you before we talk about the or, the already successful run that the schools having before the doors have even been open. Where did this all start? Where did it come about? Uh, where did this idea begin?
5: You know, Nachum, as you know, um, Dovin, my oldest, so he, you know, he went to JEC. He went to TABC for a little bit. And um, I always found it that, that there was more, there was more things that, that the schools could offer to us. I'm not putting down at all any other yeshiva at all whatsoever. Every, every place is unique in their way um, of doing things, of doing their education. But for me, like, I felt like, you know, what is it? What's the magical that in Israel, in one year, they get to these kids, Baruch Hashem, and they, they really change their lives and... And they really educate them the way like a parent or, or, you know, would want us to be educated in these times. So I felt like, you know, four years of high school and then you have a year in, in Israel. It takes six months, sometimes three months, sometimes six months for these kids to really get it and understand why they're doing this, why they're davening, why are they, you know, what, what is the reason? What's the, what's the ikkar and it's just not. I felt like you know, like the schools were like emphasizing much more on the grades. Like, oh, what you get on your Kumaro test? What you uh, you know, uh, tell me what Raba said, you know, like in the Gumaro And that was that's the answer. That's the question. That's what they want. So the kids are always, uh, you know, just just trying to get by the school, but they don't understand the essence of that. Look, in education, secular education, I think it's very important. Um, you know, to know, you know, you know, algebra or the bio or the or the essence of that. Fine, that could be a little bit of memorization, but over here I feel like, you know, we need more. We need to do more for cholesterol. and I felt like, you know, when uh, Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Abelak, you know, thought about this, and, you know, more, mostly Rabbi Friedman told me about it, I said, you know, it's a great idea. Let's try to work on it. Um, so, at first, again, I was also very worried.
8: Right. During, <laughs> <You know. laughs> during, during,
5: during COVID, during all this stuff. But bar Hashem, I think, you know, we pulled it together.
1: So Rabbi Friedman, we're used to, I mean, again, you know, a lot of great educational institutions out there. Uh, we're used to a certain way, uh, a certain approach. And it sounds like when it comes to secular studies, um, uh, uh, you're, you're fully aboard uh, with that approach. But when it comes to limude Kodesh, How would we put it? A little less academic and a little bit more of an experience? Is that how you would put it, Rabbi Friedman?
4: No, no. um, To be honest, you know, it's funny. When I went to Herzl to learn and I spent um, almost four years out there after high school and I came back, I was kind of surprised, actually, that what they were doing out there was not being implemented over here. Hmm. I figured it was just a matter of time until everyone caught on and realized how effective and positive the experience was out there and you know i just again i just figured it was a matter of time and you know i've now been working um you know in the local schools here for the last 15 years and you know i saw that i was able in my own room to run things the way that i wanted and believed that it would impacted me and all of my friends but yet the the overall way of doing things was still done the way that I guess on the general studies um, area things are done, and to me, one thing has nothing to do with the other. Just like gym, right, doesn't need to be run in such a way. Um, I don't think that Unidecota should be run um, in the way that a general studies program is run, and for that reason, it's always been my aspiration and intention to run such a uh, program. I just. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't sure how or when yeah. or where. Um and time was now, no question for a so, lot of reasons. But right. to me, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're really just taking what all of the amazing, incredibly Shiva's and Eric are doing and just implementing it over here on this side of the ocean. Rabbi
1: by Scott Friedman, uh, new uh, head of school at the R U Roll of Tenafly. So so if and, and I read a little bit obviously about your mission and about, you know, what what you have to say about all this uh in advance of this conversation, so if if uh, not giving tests, uh, if uh, being you know uh, um, casual in terms of you know homework and assignments and things like that, a- and giving an air, and, and I think you'd agree with this based on what I read about your approach, giving an an, an air of an atmosphere of of optional, you know, not not really <laughs> letting the kids. Um, not really running a system where it's optional to be in the classroom, but making the kids feel as if, you know, they're they're in control more of their uh, destiny when it comes to Limuday Kodesh. Uh, if that works, what I just described, in your classroom, and I would have to imagine it has uh, over all
4: these years that you're in Chinuch,
1: is it something that's possible to work school-wide?
4: Uh, no question. It's uh, been proven by, like I said, all the shivas in Eretzol. The one thing people can ask Is okay. Maybe they're more mature, more ready. Right,
8: the age is is the issue.
4: Exactly. And that's what people are concerned or, you know, thinking or questioning about. And it's, you know, they're certainly entitled to that question. But I certainly have seen Baruch Hashem tremendous, um, you know, success for the, t- the boys, um, you know, see how much they enjoy it and how much they've grown and benefited from it right. um, over all these years on a high school level. So I have no question. It's not a question of if it works. It's simply a question of when it works. By, oh, by it's the way, already been working.
1: I, I want to add one other thing to it, and then I want to get Rabbi Yablock's comment as well. Obviously, he's also really, really familiar with the system in Israel and, and education on this side. Um, there are some who might argue uh, putting aside the age issue, that the isolation issue, being 6,000 miles away from home, being in an environment where you're completely enveloped by those who love optional Torah study, that those are two big factors. First, you, Rabbi Friedman, what would you say to that?
4: Well, first of all, I'm so happy we're having this conversation. I really am, and I'm glad that you're asking me these questions. Um So the answer to that is that perhaps when Joe went to Eric Strell, you could make that argument. Certainly, when I went, the argument could still be made when there was literally, like, one computer. <laughs> notice, you know, he he, notice he doesn't you know, say and, me,
1: folks. He doesn't say me in the in the era of aerograms. Yeah. That, he, that he won't bring up.
4: <laughs> right, but I'm saying today, you know, when guys are going and they have access to everything in the world, right. on their phones, yeah, on people, their laptop, in their pockets, right. they're so connected. They're not disconnected at all. Families are flying in and out every other day. Bar HaShem, you know. Right. And, uh... It's, I'm just saying, and then you know, I could just tell you, other communities have said to me, "We don't want our kids going to Herzl." You know, they're so protected here in America with their families, and right. we watch them. They go there, and it's a hefker belt; they do whatever they want. Right. So, you, you know, know, you could see it both ways. Uh, I don't believe so. I really believe the secret sauce, and it's so different at a you know at a place like Isha Torah, or even as I pointed out. So many adults who didn't like learning when they were younger, even davening, all of a sudden they start to when it's their own decision because right. there's something much more meaningful and connected when you make that decision. And that's what we want. We want the boys to buy in at some point.
1: And by them. the way, and by the way, to make your point, in my own experience, many point to the difference that my oldest had in Israel as compared to his subsequent siblings that the difference was the iPhone in his era didn't exist so we're talking Forget about me and and Joe and others from past generations just in that small time frame of those six, yeah in those six seven years different
4: places and and for that reason maybe maybe it needed to wait until now to do it here but at this point I don't believe we have any choice if I can make one more quick comment you know you mentioned that during COVID and corona like we have to be out of our minds to be doing something like this and you're probably right um, but what I will tell you is, you know, unfortunately, very, very sad. Last night, um, uh, an incredible pillar and beloved member, uh, Rebbe uh, Rav of the say community, um, was Mr. Shmuel Berkowitz um, Zatzal, really an amazing, amazing Psadic person. And I could just tell you that when Corona hit, and I saw what was going on in the world, and I saw so many people... Who Nebuch, you know, had lost their lives. Family members lost their lives. I, I'm not just saying this; I meant it. I, I really felt like, if not now, when? You know, like life is so fragile. Yeah. If there's gonna, one thing, if we're gonna do something of significance. We could wait our whole lives to do it. I've already waited 15 years. Yeah. But you know, you have to just make it happen. And. You know, whatever you have to do, whatever it takes—that's that's really our attitude.
1: I hear that. Or by Scott Friedman with us. Or by Yashar Yablok is the principal, the brand new principal of our Israel of Tenafly. Rabbi Yablok, I mentioned I wanted your perspective on this uh, whole issue of um, of trying to 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 bring a, a system that people have now finally gotten used to when it comes to educating uh, our youth, especially in the area of Torah study in Israel, here to the U.S. What do you think?
7: Uh, I, you know, uh, it's something that Rabbi Friedman and I have been talking about for a long time. Um, it, it's it's a difference in my mind of uh, taking a fundamental position in the godless of each each student. It's something that they felt every time they've walked into Rabbi Friedman's office, and uh, something I I try to demonstrate in in our in my role in in wherever it's been is the greatness that each of our our B'nai Torah have inside them. And there's a lot of growth. There's a you know high school and the teenage years are. Are at times complicated, and that's that's specifically the reason why uh, people like Ray Freeman and myself are motivated, and inspired to work with um, our teams. And the goal is to be a, a, a deep and, and consistent belief in their greatness. And for that reason, yeah, we're 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 eager to support them and provide them the space to learn about themselves. But we really want the stress, if at all, and and the effort that our teams are putting. During these years, to be focused on their personal growth, and I think that's another thing these shivas really do is they say, yep. "We're not here. We're not here to, to you know, to, to define this for you. We're here to model it, and we're here to ask you and encourage you and inspire you to become the person that we all know you can be, and give you the space to be that person." And we want to do the same thing, and that's going to be the conversation on Judaic and general study side. It's really about you. We, we want to facilitate and grow the um, Ne Torah, but allow them to. Focus their energy on what do I need to do to become that person, not not what who, whose standards and whose labels and whose definitions do I need to meet to be labeled as a successful
1: student. The uh, brand-new Yeshiva High School for Boys is uh, Or Yisrael of Tenafly, New Jersey. If you go to the website, oryot.org, or is O-H-R, so it's ohR yot.org and we will speak about the parlor meeting in a minute, but you'll see there that Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Yablok have already announced uh, certain members of the faculty, including Rabbi David Koppelman, including Rabbi Shmuel Aaron Honig, uh, including uh, distinguished members of the General Studies faculty in areas of math and English as well. And you've done something interesting here, Rabbi Yablok, and I got a sense of this yesterday uh, during my conversation with Joe. Um, you, want a, a, you want a certain element of uh, rabbiim influencers, if you will, having something to do with the yeshiva, even if they're not full-time faculty. And this might actually start a real trend, frankly, uh, in schools of of getting people who are dedicated in general to other causes, other organizations, other educational institutions to spend time with you. And therefore, you call it on the web, on the site, you call it a rotation of Inspiring Rebeum some might call it special guests, <laughs> you know, there, there may be other terms, but people like Ray Mordechai Shane, your host in Tenafly, Rabbi Shmuel Berkowitz, Rabbi Yitzchak Cohen, Rabbi Mordechai Finkelman, Rabbi Lam, Rabbi Avram Shur, Rabbi Zechariah Wallerstein, Rabbi Benachem Zupnik, Eitan Katz, the great uh, singer and uh, inspirer, if you will. All these people are going to have a role of being in regular contact with the students of our Yisrael. And... um I, I I would say based on the list you've put together, Rabbi Yablok, this approach uh, seems to have worked well so far.
7: Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, these are all personalities that have that believe in what we're doing and are giving of their time because they also believe, like Rabbi Friedman mentioned, it's an it's an ace lasos and it's a, it's a cause that that really they're eager to see come to bear in the yeshiva world. Um, and I, I personally remember, and I, I can tell you from being involved in yeshivas. Um, around the country, when that personality comes, they can accomplish things that the most remarkable Rebbe, uh, who has a different role in a routine, in a structure, who can say a fantastic seer or drashtha, right. when that personality comes with, with everything they bring with it, and shares an inspiring message, and not only connects you to the greatness that exists within the Jewish community, and exposes you to, to such uh, accomplished personalities, but when that person comes in, who's not a regular, uh, by us, they'll be a regular, but a, in a different different setting. Um, we've seen in these years, Nisrael have mini-series. They expose the guys to specific sessions from great leaders. Uh, I always remembered that was something that I looked forward to each week, and it gave me a different view than my daily shir. Um, and also, it also broadened my perspective and allowed me to have just such a wide range of personalities <laughs> to connect to. Frank, Frank, and we want our guys to feel that way. Frankly,
1: it's it's probably the best memories of yeshivas those moments. Yes. Frankly, uh, yeshiva, are you of Tenefly? Is the brand new boys yeshiva high school? Uh, We're speaking to R.A. Friedman, Rabbi Yablok, and uh, to Joe Rosazada, who's chairman of the board of the Yeshiva. We'll talk about Sunday's event in a minute. I know I keep saying that. We will get to it, and I assume any parent who wants information can just go to the web or yot.org, O-H-R-Y-O-T.org. But, Rabbi Friedman, uh, you know what? Let me ask this to Joe. Uh, Joe, I I have seen, you know, again, because of my age, I've seen a lot of schools start. Frankly, a Yeshiva Boys High School that's already uh, confirmed with 20-plus students, in my opinion, is is, is a really successful start. Uh, what do, what do you think as you've already um, gotten to the number 20 in terms of students who are going to be coming this coming school year?
5: So, you know, it's, 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 it's a good question because, you know, like I was also like I was worried again because of COVID, because of what's going on, what's going to be, how's it going to be. But since, like, you know, even since the article that we put out last week, you know, Rabbi Freeman has gotten in, Rabbi Yablak have gotten in many, many phone calls. Like, you know, he had interviews with five students yesterday. You know, it's unbelievable that, that people didn't realize or, or didn't know that this could exist. Something like this could happen. And Hashem, we're getting, like, phone calls and, and inquiries, and people are saying they wanted more information. And that's one of the reasons why we said this week, like, we need to do something with Zoom. Um,
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think we lost Rabbi Friedman. Hopefully, he'll reconnect. Go right ahead.
5: Yeah. So, so, so I felt like you know it's so important that you know we put a Zoom parlor meeting on um, that that people could answer these questions. People are concerned. Uh, right. Are they really going to be successful? It's not what's going to be what's not going to be. So that that's one, one of one of the reasons. So we gotten so many inquiries that I think with Hashem with with, uh, with Hashem's help that we're going to be uh, successful and this is going to you know really change. The, everybody's perspective of how they're our, our kids.
1: And by the way, we should point out, and I'm being serious now, we, we should point out that that you and people should know this if they have any type of memory of this radio show. You have been you have been a great supporter, and I'm not just talking about financially, I'm talking about being out there in the community as well. You've been a great supporter of, of all the schools we've mentioned in this conversation. And in addition to that, uh, the yeshiva uh, in in Bergen County where we actually did the show when you dedicated the Beit Midrash so pe- pe- people shouldn't think that this is an effort to you know to prove a point to anybody this is this is an effort to, this is an effort by you to just add to the incredible array of choices that people have out there
5: yeah, absolutely hachshama like you know every place is unique and i want every shiva to be successful as you know as much as possible um, I also feel like you know there's a need for this there's there, there's a need for this type of uh, education and that the shame we should be successful, but you know at the same time again, like I love Torah. I think it's an amazing place I think it's the that, you know again the a very very unique place and but, but at the same time, you have to have these types of kids that that also want the sports the you know the yeshiva league that that you know kids right. want to play basketball in and right. And you can have both worlds. in the, in, the, in my in my head, I feel like, oh, why can't we have both worlds in the same the same time? And you know, same thing as in Israel, we should we should have something here in America.
1: All right, everybody, it's very simple. If you're a parent or a student, if you're an eighth grade or whatever the case may be, uh, who wants more information, you're going to get a chance to um, to see. Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Yablach, and hear from them up close and personal. Maybe not as up close and personal as the old-style parlor meeting, <laughs> but there will be a virtual parlor meeting this coming Sunday. It's our area's newest Yeshiva High School, Or Yisrael of Tenafly, and they have announced, as you know, that Rabbi Eitan Katz is now part of their faculty. We explained that uh, with the list of incredible people that are now going to be affiliated with the Yeshiva. The virtual parlor meeting is this Sunday, starting at 8.45 p.m. Again, the virtual parlor meeting is this Sunday. Starting at 8.45 p.m., there'll be an introduction of R.U. Searle to the community, an overview of their philosophy and their schedule, the actual daily schedule. You'll have the Q&A with Ray Friedman and Rabbi Yablok, or Ray Friedman, the head of school, Rabbi Yablok, the principal. You'll meet R.U. Searle parents and board members who'll be in as well. And of course, uh, you could do this all via Zoom. Uh, you check out, you'll, you'll see the uh, the flyer on social media and the local papers. Uh, it would be hard for me right now to, to go through the Zoom information, but if you email Uh, Rabbi Friedman, he'll be more than happy to send you the Zoom information and you can be part of this coming Sunday's virtual parlor meeting beginning at 845 Sunday night uh, for R.U. Stroll of Tenafly. Rabbi Friedman's address is uh, sfriedman at ohryot.org. Again, sfriedman at ohryot.org. And again, uh, very simply, all the info is available on the website, ohryot.org. You can check it out. And see what's going on. By the way, Rabbi Friedman, we should mention Joe mentioned sports. Uh, you didn't pursue this without knowing that you'd have a a a uh, first class facility uh, for the students. This is not you know you're not setting up tents and trailers in order to kick this school off the ground. You're in a real facility in Tenafly.
4: Yeah, listen. I mean, I was not going to start. We were not, excuse me, going to start or um without that kind of facility. Um, You know, we knew that in order to do something um, of meaning, it had to be great on every level. And that's true on the general study side. That's true on the limited coder side. That's true on the sports side. I mean, that's true about uh, the apparel that the guys are going to get. I mean, everything we do is going to be done first class because, um, you know, it's the way things need to be done and it's the way things should be done. And, you know, we want it to be a great success. And, you know, we want the boys to be happy and we want them to grow and we want them to have uh, every opportunity in the world and to really feel good about the, about that, them and the school itself.
1: Yeah, that's the way to do it. No question about it. Um, and Rabbi Yablok, I'm sure you would agree that, that the, the surroundings – The physical building, once we get back inside our physical buildings, please God, this Labor Day, I hope that the schools will be opening up, Uh, the physical building has a lot to do with the environment of study, both uh, Judaic studies and secular studies.
7: Yeah, 100%. The truth is, the environment throughout the yeshiva that Ray Freeman um, has been discussing uh, of of warmth and happiness and a sense of Belonging for the Tommy Dim was always the goal. And you know what it takes for a high school student to feel like it belongs. It's right. um, <laughs> a fantastic uh, gym and, and a fantastic base medrash and a sense of a yeshiva that's uh, that, that's dedicated to their their sense of uh, belonging. It's a, it's a place where we know that the guys are going to want to be and are going to want to stay. We're going to have a tough time sending them home every night. Um, <laughs> and we're going to have a tough time leaving ourselves. You know, there's a... Selfishly, the two of us uh, love everything about this event and Are going to be there with them every
1: minute. That's really cool. I like how you say that, Joe. Have other lay leaders stepped forward? Have you have you been approached by other people in the community who are not, you know, rabbema or students who who want to be involved and are excited about this project?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of them, you know, are not. You know, they're not. There are some parents that have kids in other schools, believe it or not, and are coming and saying, we want to get involved. We want to see how you succeed. And if you do succeed, we want to come get on board nice. with it, which is, which is amazing. Like You know, like just the sound of it. So, yes, we definitely have parents and, you know, people have come to me all the time and said, you know, please let us know what we can do to help. And, you know, you know they, they see it. They see that, that it, there's a need in the community for this.
1: Uh, well, it's a great partnership, Rabbi Friedman. I'm thrilled for you. You have an amazing opportunity here, and I'm so glad the community is responding already. Rabbi Ablack, as I said to you off the air, I'm so happy for you and your family uh, that you have uh, yet another opportunity to show everybody at, uh, your leadership in the world of Chinuch is phenomenal that's always been my uh, point of view and i'm very happy that more and more people are going to learn that now and and mm-hmm. joe i know this is a dream for you we've discussed this off the air a million times and uh, and and to be this close to be in july and know that, th- that you have a really solid numbers wise and it sounds quality wise that you have a really solid incoming class must be an amazing feeling and everybody yeah. everybody out there get all this information you could go to the website or you saw of tenafly is ohryot.org and this coming Sunday night is the virtual parlor meeting where Rabbi Friedman and Rabbi Yablok will preside uh, over um, a discussion and a presentation about all these things. The philosophy of the yeshiva, Q&A, so you can ask whatever you want. You, there will be parents and board members that you'll be able to meet virtually as well. And they will talk you talk to you about that uh, about the new faculty, both in Judaic studies and secular studies, uh, that is helping to solidify the opening of the yeshiva for Rabbi Friedman. Uh, for uh, information, you can contact Rabbi Friedman at s.friedman at ohr at oh And again, it's a brand new yeshiva high school for boys in. Tenafly, New Jersey. I wish you all the best of luck, uh, both with Sunday, with the virtual parlor meeting, and with the upcoming school year, and you know we're going to be following you very, very closely.
5: (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for your time.
1: An absolute pleasure. Thursday morning at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at NachumSiegel.com, on the Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. It's Thursday, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures are the centerpiece of our nine days format. He is in the middle of the lecture entitled Orthodoxy from the series entitled The United States and Its Jews. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Because they were so spread out.
2: It was almost impossible that uh, large numbers of Jews could walk to the synagogue. And therefore because of this uh, social problem Uh, the uh, major break between the conservative movement in the United States and the Orthodox took place. Until uh, probably 1948-49, the conservative movement was basically Orthodox light. Uh, they had deviations in the fact that men and women were not separated in the synagogue. But the synagogue service was orthodox, and most of the rabbis were observant orthodox. The Jewish Theological Seminary, which trained the conservative rabbis, had an orthodox faculty, and it itself was strictly orthodox. The seminary always had separate seating. And the line was very blurred. But the break occurred in 1948 because of the fact that the conservatives were the vanguard that built synagogues in suburbia. So they were faced with the problem immediately of how are we going to have people come on the Sabbath and are going to walk three, four miles. And therefore, the rabbinic commission of the seminary uh, commissioned a uh, halachic review And they wrote a very scholarly rabbinic responsa using halachic terms, claiming that on the basis of halacha they were able to do so. And they said, it's all right to drive a car to the synagogue on Sabbath if you're going for the services. And that was a major break, because uh, people, uh, people were not uh, taken in by this. If you could drive the car to the synagogue, you could drive it to the golf course, too. And therefore, uh, the Sabbath was broken. It was broken badly. So you had this major split in the American Jewish community along observant lines, really along the lines of the Sabbath. And when I grew up as a child, uh, I had a lot of friends that weren't Sabbath observers, but they were Jewish. But the Sabbath was the Sabbath. It was only one definition of it. Later on, however, the definition became whether you were a Sabbath observer or not. I think the air conditioning is off, right? So either open the windows or ask them to turn on the air uh, (laughs)
8: conditioning.
2: Should open the windows. Now, in addition to this, starting in 1946 and continuing uh, till about 1960, there was a wave of Eastern European Jews that came to the United States, the survivors. With them came the surviving Hasidic leaders, the surviving Rashi Yeshiva, those who escaped, those who were from Shanghai, they came to America. Unlike their predecessors, they were not willing to admit that America was different. They were not willing to say, we're gonna compromise because it's America. And they took a very hard line on matters of observance, on matters of kosherists, and on policy matters. So for instance, there was an organization in the United States called the Synagogue Council of America. The Synagogue Council of America, uh, which really never accomplished anything, which, not unlike other organizations, uh, was composed of reform, conservative, and orthodox synagogues, and of reform, conservative, and orthodox rabbinic organizations. And it had existed since the 1920s. Uh, it, had, uh, it lobbied on behalf of Jewish causes, but it really wasn't a uh, very effective or strong organization. It, however, became the focal point of a dispute in the Orthodox community, a dispute which still has ramifications until today, and it's mirrored here in Israeli society as well. The uh, European rabbis who now had positions in the American yeshivot and who were Hasidic leaders and were very, very influential and strong and great people, they demanded that the Orthodox withdraw from the Synagogue Council of America. In fact, they gave up on the conservative and reform movement in America. The underlying reason was that they said these people are never going to change. We're never going to be able to convince them. They're going to drift off. That's it. We have to build ourselves. We have to go our own way. We have to forget about them. Now, there were sections in the Orthodox community that disagreed with that that felt that it was an unnecessary fracture. But it nevertheless occurred. And it had great influence because it developed, within orthodoxy itself, two streams in America. One stream would control, represent the yeshiva world and the Hasidic world, and the other one eventually claimed to be the representatives of modern orthodoxy. But no one expected that somehow the hardliners, those that represented the Yeshiva world, etc, would be successful. And they started out very small. I remember that in 1953 uh, my father and I took a trip to the East Coast, and my father, who knew Rabbi Aaron Cutler from Europe, uh, went to see him. And then he uh, had started his institution in Lakewood. There was a lady there that uh, gave him an old uh, rooming house to house the yeshiva, and uh, it had a student body then of 27, of whom a, a third or perhaps a half were European born, not even Americans. And my father asked uh, Rabbi Cutler, how many uh, students does he expect that his yeshiva will grow into? And the answer was um, 50, maybe 100. At the last count, I think there were uh, (laughs) 9,341. So that's a remarkable change in American Jewry, and uh, was matched by uh, the development of Hasidic neighborhoods, in, in especially in New York, Borough Park, which originally was uh, pretty much a modern Orthodox neighborhood. It became a bastion of the Hasidic, and uh, Williamsburg, the sotmer built it, and uh, there was a new, uh, a new uh, energy in the Orthodox community. Even though most of American Jewry, the overwhelming amount, were conservative and reform, and the conservative were positive that they were the wave of the future. There was an article in Look Magazine in 1950 about, about American Jewry, and it predicted that the wave of the future would be that American Jewry would be conservative, the Orthodox would disappear, and it would be conservative and reform, and that would be it. And that was the expert opinion. All the Jewish federations, all the Jewish uh, official organizations were based on that premise. And therefore, their executive heads and their boards of directors were all conservative and reform. I remember uh, when... uh, in uh, 1958 to 59, I appeared before the Federation in Chicago to appeal for funds for the Jewish Orthodox Jewish Day School there uh, to say that I got a hostile reception would be an understatement. The Federation today gives uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in Chicago to uh, orthodox educational institutions because that became the ball game there is nothing else to do and uh, great changes were occurring Uh, Dr. Belkin was the head of the Yeshiva University, a man of great vision, a great, great Talmudic scholar. So he established the Albert Einstein Medical School, which uh, allowed Orthodox students to obtain a medical degree without violating the Sabbath. And because Einstein was successful, it was copied by other medical schools that were not Jewish, but who now instituted a Sabbath observant program in order to attract these students. And the Jewish community began to come into its own. There was a uh, anti-Semitism was no longer what shall I say, acceptable. It existed, but it was not something you advertised anymore. There was a famous movie called Gentleman's Agreement, which highlighted anti-Semitism, and people talked about it, and it became uh, less and less acceptable. Uh, the horrors of the Holocaust, naturally, had a great influence. And Jewish political influence grew as well. So, uh, for 1960, for instance, John F. Kennedy was elected because of uh, Jacob Arvey, who was a member of my father's shul in Chicago. And he was the Democratic National Committeeman for... Illinois, and uh, when uh, the vote in Illinois, Kennedy needed uh, a few more thousand votes, Harvey somehow supplied him with 8,000 votes, and uh, Nixon was defeated. So there was now Jewish influence. Not only that, uh, the labor unions became strong. The Jews were very strong in the labor union. Even in Roosevelt's time, uh, so Roosevelt used to say, you have to clear it with a Jewish labor leader as to whether or not it'll go. So Jews became much more influential than their numbers would warrant. And the fact that Jews also began to climb The financial scale, and therefore they were people with money, and some Jews had a lot of money. The money buys you influence in politics. Now, all of this uh, was reinforced by the Six-Day War. Jews in the United States uh, bought Israel bonds. So they bought Israel bonds originally as a donation. They didn't figure that Israel was ever going to redeem the bond. But Israel did so. And uh, Jewish influence, uh, labor unions bought Israel bonds for their pension funds, all sorts of investors. It became not a matter of charity, but a matter of commerce. And the support to Israel grew. Now, in 1967, when Nasser and the Arabs said they were going to throw the Jews into the sea, so American Jewry was shocked. I lived through it. I can testify to it. People walked in the streets dumbfounded. You know what to do. I remember I was a road there in Miami Beach then, People came and sat in shul all day, not they didn't daven, they they weren't really. they just sat. Because here it was going to happen again, God forbid. And when the Six Day War was over, with its astounding result, then American Jewry was absolutely euphoric and that again went across the board so for instance uh, there were still reform temples in 1960s that would not make an, apo- an appeal for israel bonds because basically reform was against it was, it was du- dual nationalism etc however the demographics of reform changed most reform now had orthodox grandparents They didn't have reform grandparents, because there are very few reform grandparents that have reform grandchildren. And therefore it all changed and became pro-Israel and it became more Jewish. The first time Jews began to wear a kippah on the street in the in the United States or on an airplane. And I, I remember when I, in the early 1970s when I headed the, the OU Kashers, companies came to us, and they wanted to have kosher certification. I never but they felt that somehow, you know, this was a magic thing. There was a man by the name of Ralph Wilson. He owned the Buffalo Bills in the National Football League and he built uh, uh, the stadium there. He made the uh, parva milk. Rich, Rich, uh, Rich's Whip, whatever. Yeah, that was him. He made a a forge. So he had the biggest OU imaginable on the package. And I once asked him, you know, (laughs) he said, what are you talking about? He said, that's why I'm successful. That's why Rich's Whip is successful. Look at that big OU. And you had big companies like Procter & Gamble and Colgate and General Foods uh, that all subscribe to have kosher now. When I grew up, there was no kosher margarine, there was no kosher shortening. By word of mouth, people told us that spry you could use because it was vegetable. Well, my mother didn 't believe it, and so she she we had uh, chicken fat shortening it was cholesterol heaven it couldn 't be more delicious. <laughs> And then uh, Procter and Gamble made Crisco and put an OU on it and made it kosher. And their sales zoomed, not because Jews bought Crisco, but somehow other people bought Crisco too. But you had this uh, great upsurge in being Jewish, and then you had uh, 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 the products of the day school movement began to appear. And at least in the Orthodox community, uh, almost all the parents withdrew their children from the public school system which already was deteriorating then, and sent them to Jewish day schools. And there were Jewish day schools all over the United States, even in smaller communities. And uh, because of that, uh, Jewish children got a Jewish education. And when you get a Jewish education, your chances of remaining Jewish and observant extremely, uh, developed to an extremely high level. And then you had a birth rate. While the uh, non-Orthodox birth rate began to decline, and it's declined for 50, 60 years consecutively, today if you factor out the Orthodox from the birth rate in the United States of Jews, uh, there is less than 1.8. And you need at least 2.2 to replenish what you have. So at this rate, they're all, it's gonna disappear. Now well, the Orthodox have uh, rates that run from 3.5 to 6. So it's not hard to see If demographics hold, and that's always a question, but it's not hard to see what's going to be and how it's going to be. So you have here this basic uh, split in the American Jewish community. I uh, characterize it as the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Orthodoxy became more self-assertive, stronger, and stronger politically as well. It was ironic that uh, the first Jew who was nominated to be uh, vice president of the United States was not a reform or a conservative Jew. who was a Sabbath observant Jew. His wife's name was Sadasa. I think his daughter has made Aliyah here. I mean, just think of that. You know, when Barry Goldwater ran for president against uh, Lyndon Johnson, so he, uh, Goldwater's father, their name was Goldwasser, and uh, Goldwater's grandfather had founded this department store in Phoenix that uh, was uh, very famous and successful. But uh, he, uh, he had converted already uh, later in life to become a Christian. And Barry Goldwater was a practicing Episcopalian. But Goldwater remarked that if he was elected, he said it would be ironic in the extreme that the first Jew that was elected as president of the United States was a practicing Episcopalian. <laughs> because that was that generation. That generation was the best that we could do with Disraeli. Disraeli, was Jewish, but he's an Anglican. If he would remain Jewish, he would never be uh, the leader of the Tory Party would never be Prime Minister. He would never be Queen Victoria's favorite Prime Minister. It was impossible. So the best we could do was also Disraeli. But that changed. And one of the things that changed it also uh, was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was one of the. Uh, seminal figures in the 20th century of Jewish life. And he uh, developed an entire cadre of people that spread out all over the United States, eventually all over the world, and who uh, who were uncompromisingly Orthodox. And that was a shot. and who demanded, they demanded that uh, the city uh, erect a menorah on Hanukkah, on city grounds. The case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, okay. In my time, uh, people were afraid to put a, nobody put a Hanukkah lamp outside. And if you put it in the window, well, you didn't make it that conspicuous either. And here, uh, you've got these gigantic menorahs on city in Indianapolis and South Bend and uh, Kansas City and uh, Pittsburgh on city grounds. And the uh, Hasidic world and this, and Chabad as well refused to compromise on clothing. They didn't look American they looked Amish. Yeah, we, uh, when I was the head of the OU, we had a uh, poultry plant. Uh, Empire had one of its plants in a place called Mifflintown, Pennsylvania. I think they're still there. That's the middle of the Amish country. So you couldn't tell the shochtim from the Amish, (laughs) unless you looked closely because the shochtim had a mustache. (laughs) But otherwise you couldn't tell the difference. And so there there was a whole different attitude, a whole different attitude towards being Jewish. And uh, this attitude uh, reflected itself in many, many ways, but the dividing line in American Jewry became much more pronounced, because much of the Orthodox world simply gave up on the others and wanted to have nothing to do with them would not uh, would not have uh, any uh, anything joint, uh, no programs, nothing there, that's it. And this had uh, all sorts of consequences because uh, no matter how correct it may have been in their eyes, it certainly alienated a vast majority of American Jewry, who came to have a distorted view of orthodoxy and of Orthodox Jews. So we have that here in Israel too, but here it's uh, more political than uh, than real. But it is here too, right? you want to get elected to Knesset, you announce, I'm going to destroy the Haredim. That's, a, so to speak, a political uh, slogan that's going to carry you to victory. And so there are great risks in that, great risks. And one, uh, to a certain extent, flies in the face again of, democ- of the demographic situation uh, when making such statements. So, the, it, this division, there was a moment uh, after the Yom Kippur War when uh, what was known as the Kiruv movement gained traction, both here in Israel and in the United States. And uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Orthodox Jews who were raised conservative, mainly conservative, some reformed, but mainly conservative, uh, became interested in their roots, and thousands of them returned to Jewish observance. But the Kirov movement was seen as a threat, by the conservative and reform, because, so to, see, so to speak, you were stealing their young and the best that they had. And therefore, they began to oppose it, and the cure movement still exists in the United States, but it uh, has very tough sledding. Last point regarding these uh, generations is the college campus. If you're Jewish, you have to go to college. It's like being bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And if you don't go to college, you're not really Jewish. And not only that, you have to get the... uh, post uh, bachelor degree degree you got to be a masters or a phd and that became a fixation in the jewish world and uh, the colleges in the united states uh, from the 1940s onward uh, became very very leftist uh, They became very atheistic, they became rapidly immoral, and they raised a great challenge, therefore, to the Jewish young people who attended. And the college experience, more than anything else, is what has shaped uh, the intermarriage rate in the United States, the assimilationist Uh, tendencies the anti-Israel tendencies that's all part of this fixation on colleges and universities which became part of the American Jewish life so uh, that's the background to where we are today and next week I hope to uh, discuss with you today and tomorrow, which is very unpredictable, but I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> Rabbi Beryl Wine, the,
1: uh, the lecture is called Orthodoxy. It's in the series entitled The United States and its Jews. Uh, information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures: one 800 wein That's one 800 499-WEIN or rabbiwine.com. Again, it's rabbiwine Rabbi or Um And I thank him again. He is the uh, centerpiece of our nine days programming as usual here at JM in the AM. We'll talk baseball with Steve Adelsberg in a minute or two. Uh, months ago when he was with us, I said that we'd uh, have another conversation uh, around the time of opening day. Tonight is opening day in Major League Baseball, believe it or not. And, and I think it's the first time that it's fallen out during the nine days, frankly. Um, so we'll do that for a few minutes coming up. Those who uh, who, like, who like baseball and the Jews talk, uh, which we so much enjoy here. Um, don't forget, all of Rabbi Wine's titles at Art Scroll uh, are now 15% off uh, in commemoration of him being the centerpiece of our programming this week. Uh, 15% off in free shipping on any Rabbi Wine title. At artscroll.com, fifteen percent off, free shipping if you use promo code radio. Make sure to use promo code radio when you um, when you go to artscroll.com. Also, ten percent off site wide on all books plus free shipping with no minimum if you use promo code radio this week. So check it out. Also, the brand new Danielle Renoff book. Um, you could pre-order it by going to artscroll.com. Uh, August the 4th circle, the calendar. I didn't realize how big a deal this is until everyone keeps telling me August the 4th, Danielle Renoff will be our guest on JM in the AM as we talk about the brand new cookbook, peas, love, and carrots. Uh, so that should be interesting. That's August the 4th circle, your calendar was that a week from Tuesday, a week from Tuesday here. At J.M. The A.M. This portion of N.S.N. programming brought to you by our friends at A.H. Shables and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best, serving the kosher world since 1954. Their hot dogs available at all Trader Joe's nationwide. Make sure to check out A.H. today, and um, make sure to enjoy them. Nachamu weekend, there'll be a lot of A.H. being grilled up. Nachamu weekend, that uh, that I can guarantee you. Uh, so make sure to check it out and uh, enjoy. Uh, don't forget that we're trying our best to help find jobs for people. If you are unemployed or if you know somebody who's unemployed, feel free to send those those resumes. Resume at nalchomsiegel.com. Again, that's resume at Uh Anything that is in the arena of uh, of Jewish not-for-profit executive positions, we forward to our friends at the Joel Paul Group. That is their specialty, after all, Uh, and um, we will continue to do that. Uh, Anything in that area and that category goes to the Joel Poll Group. Uh, Everything else, we try our hardest to um, think of original ideas to match people up, or not so original ideas, to match people up with employment during these times. Tomorrow morning here at JM and the AM. Tomorrow morning here at JM the AM, Malcolm Holmline, of course, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. He'll join us here at JMN at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow is the 3rd of Av, the 26th anniversary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Shloshim Observance. 26 years ago tonight, my father delivered a uh, Shloshim Observance eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I do believe it is the best comprehensive, relatively short, 25 minutes for a biography of the Rebbe trust me is short with the incredible life that the Rebbe had uh, I, I feel it's the best comprehensive biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe ever it's one of the reasons we rebroadcast it every single year and you have the opportunity to hear it tomorrow morning starting at 7.15 Rabbi Zev Siegel, my beloved late father on the Lubavitcher Rebbe tomorrow morning 7.15 a.m. Eastern time right here at JM in the a.m. Malcolm Holon as I said is going to be on at 7.40 Rabbi Uden of course, Harry Rothenberg And uh, plenty of uh, talk about Parshas Devarim. Uh, Shabbos Chazon begins tomorrow night. We have um, special guests coming up next week before we get to Tisha Our Tisha observance will be one week from today, and I hope you'll join us. If you're not heading to synagogue, I hope you'll join us. Uh, We have a really, really inspiring Kinos service here every single year with Rabbi Rabbi Goldwasser. And I hope that... um, That you'll join us for it on Thursday on Tisha B'Av. But before we get to that, on Monday, Ellie Beer is scheduled to join and to be a guest of ours. You know that he recovered from COVID. He's the director of United Hetzalah of Israel. He had quite a COVID episode, and now he is um, letting the world know about the after effects of COVID. Uh, one of the devastating things about this disease, as opposed to other flu-like diseases, speak, saying flu-like meaning symptoms are like the flu, uh, is that now we're learning about the terrible after effects. So when, when people take every precaution to not get sick, and thank God they should continue to take every precaution not to get sick, it's not just to avoid those weeks, if if please God they would recover, to avoid those weeks in the hospital and the difficulties that they have during those weeks of the, uh, of the COVID-19 disease, virus. Uh, but in addition, there are a lot of after effects that are being avoided as well. He'll discuss all those with us coming up Monday here at JM in the AM. On Wednesday, many of you likely have already heard about Abe Foxman's commitment to Holocaust survivors through the Met Council on Jewish Poverty. Got to give a lot of credit to David Greenfield and the board and everybody who's had a role in setting up this program that Abe Foxman essentially is chairing. I mean, we'll get the exact details, but it sounds like he's chairing this effort, uh, to help those Holocaust survivors in this country, uh, that are going hungry and he will join us here at JMM to discuss the program. But what's in my opinion, even more appropriate and more significant is that with his history, many of you are familiar with what he went through as a young boy, with his history and being a Holocaust survivor, um, he will join us here on Erev Tishabov. That is traditionally a time, both Erev Tishabov and Tishabov, and certainly the entire period of the nine days, and many of us focus on the uh, horrors of Jewish history, and uh, no greater horror for modern Jewish history, obviously, than the Holocaust. So we'll actually have that discussion with him. We'll actually have that discussion with him on Erev Tishabov here at JM in the AM. So that should be very, very interesting and uh, really an appropriate way to go into Tishabov. So join us for that uh, with all of our programming next week as our nine days format continues. But that that conversation I certainly wanted uh, to make sure to point out. I want to thank those who are, co- who are still um, helping us during our uh, 2020 fundraiser. Uh, I want to thank listener uh, Neil. Uh, for a contribution of ten times high yesterday, a big thank you for that. Uh, just came through on our uh, fjbunity.org website. I want to thank listener Yola and Yola. I I cannot thank you enough for never forgetting us. Um, uh, who sent in a donation of a uh, three times high? Thank you very very much. And the listener Douglas, I thank you for your donation as well. Anybody out there would like to support us? It's fjbunity.org fjbunity.org Well well a few weeks ago Steve Adelsberg was with us live via telephone we got into this this whole discussion about baseball I said to him that soon I wanted to come in and literally talk about some of these topics live face to face in a real conversation all right we're not at that stage yet but but when I discovered <laughs> when I discovered that Major League Baseball's opening day is today. I said, you know what? This is a good day to have a follow-up conversation for those of us who love Jewish slash baseball uh, conversations. I never expected opening day to be during the nine days. Frankly, uh, that that is unprecedented. Steve Adelsberg, welcome back to JM
9: and the AM. And good morning, Malcolm. I try to get you lazy, but I just couldn't get it to fly. You aren't wearing a mask. You gotta have a mask. You, <laughs> <in the next, laughs> you could be in the next planet, but you gotta have a mask.
1: So I asked you to buy me Levy and Shul this morning virtually, and you're not saying that the problem was that I was many miles away from your dominant. You're saying the problem was I wasn't prepared properly in terms of COVID. That's what you're saying. I'm in <laughs> I'm in
9: Congregation Sherry at ninety eight West End Avenue. Come on down, but, <laughs> but today but today we go up to Sacket Lake. Who got North. Levy?
1: Steve, who got Levy? This morning? I'd like to know.
9: Rabbi Pluchuk. Rabbi wow. Pluchuk. All right. I could not <laughs> come cum but he was a lady. I can't argue with that. I mean, come on. <laughs> who, 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 anyway. gets,
1: who gets Lavy up at Sackett Lake? Who's who, Who's the
9: who's oh. the, the Lavy up at Sackett Lake? <laughs> All I know is, when, well, you have Rabbi Prague, also a lady.
8: Seems to oh. hang out with
9: Raymond Levy. Yeah. yeah. You, you are so in. You're in like, you're so in. It's you know, amazing. So in. You, really, you
1: really hang out with a prominent <laughs> list of Lavyim.
9: Steve Adelsberg and I have a
1: big announcement. For the first time in history, opening day is during the nine
9: days. Steve, <laughs> Steve, Steve, Well, <laughs> we always say Terry Cashman. No, I mean, remember, Terry Cashman wrote that great, yeah. that great song about Willie baseball. Mickey
1: and the Duke, yeah.
9: And, like, you know, talking baseball. And yeah. he used to say, it's opening day, and I could be a boy once more.
1: That is for sure. And tonight, tonight, uh, in two games that are taking place at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Three New York teams are playing. Out of four teams tonight, three New York teams are playing. You have the Yankees from the Bronx against Washington. That'll be in Washington. And then you have the Giants from the Polo grounds visiting Ebbets Field to play the Dodgers in Brooklyn. So you have three boroughs playing tonight, Steve.
9: Well, you gotta know one thing. And your fourth team, the Washington Nationals,
8: yeah. there's,
9: a, there's a great story about them. Yeah. But you don't know. Well, I'm gonna tell head. you in the Okay, I'm with Mayor Goldberg, Rav Mayor Goldberg, was yeah. going down to the University of Maryland for Shabbos to give it to his charm. Right. My job, as you know, is to carry the bags. Right.
8: I carry right. the bags
9: <laughs> and give out, give out to the Koros. The yeah. Very good, everything's good. And Rav Goldberg says to me, I have to go meet a cousin in Washington. Can we stop off there? I go, sure, I can, you know, we stop off, no problem. Who's your cousin? Uh, he says, I don't know what he does. He has something to do with the Washington Nationals. What's no his name? Ted Lerner. Ho, 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 He doesn't have something to do with the Washington Nationals. He's the owner. I was just going to say, he's the owner yeah,
1: of the Nationals. He,
9: he, I say, Rav Goldberg, how do you know the owner of the Washington Nationals? And why am I first finding this out now? He says, I have to tell you, I have a great-uncle in Yerushalayim. He told me that we have a cousin in what you're called in Washington. And it's my job to find out who he is, what he is, what's he up to, and get him back to know that he's, he's from a Ushami family. I go, Are you kidding me? This is the owner of the Washington Nationals. We have the meeting. His grandson and son come. We have a great time. We're talking, yada, yada. And he's the owner. And I'm saying, the mayor, he owns the team. He says to Red mayor, would you want to go to the game? He goes, love <gasps> well, is My well, you, Steve. <laughs> lie, but, yeah, believe <laughs> me, it's Shelly Steve. <laughs> <laughs> they when 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 Ted son, gets married, they bring in the Golvich boys, Aviad and Aviad uh, and ETL, and he meets Kadushin at the wedding. How long ago was this? How long ago was this? Two years ago.
1: Unbelievable.
9: And they have a Kesher. He, had, him, he, he had, they had the boys, had him come, run his family, come to Pesach in Yishalayim. They had Seda by them, took him to the hotel, and uh, the rest is history.
1: I he, wish you would have told me this before they won the World Series. I would have been
8: rooting for them uh, during that World hello, Series. Hello,
9: hello. He goes, we're going. I said, are we going to the series? He said, like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> Meanwhile, the biggest thing is that, so Aviad with his sister Ellie Moore from California, and they go to a Washington National game. They sit in the owner's box. Now he's been an owner for quite a number of years. The first thing happens that never happened before: a baseball hits into the owner's body, ah, and it that's... goes right to Aviat Goldfield, and he catches the baseball. <laughs> True story. You can't, you can't make this up.
1: Unbelievable! Unbelievable! So
9: we have um, opening day today, which is great. now. One
1: second, but you but you sometimes do some crazy things and head to to obscure games. Were you at any of the National Series games?
9: Were you at any of those? I didn't I didn't get to the games. Yeah, I mean, one of the best games I ever went to. Of course, we all remember was '96 Yankees. Right. When we were the first two games in Yankee Stadium, the first two games in Yankee Stadium were you know uh, we they got lost. blown away. You you were blown home. Away. You were home by nine o'clock that night. <laughs> it, was, it was like Chipper Jones. They we, we were having batting practice against right.
8: us. I remember that
9: comes, <laughs> comes. like you know game three. Yeah, it was the game when when David Cone got us back into the series. But if you remember. It's the pivotal game, the pivotal game four.
8: Yeah, and the pivotal one right? was,
9: was of course, Lawrence hitting the home run. Right. And it was down in length, and that was our road trip, and that and that that brought the Yankees back who they were. Lawrence
1: uh, actually tied the game with that home run.
9: Exactly, and mm-hmm. it was just a great series when... When Pettit won, Pettit pitched a great game, and of course it was Game Six Saturday night where Wade Box yeah. decides to jump on the
8: policeman's
1: horse. Yeah, and he's um, running around am, right field. And I am, and I am that night, emceeing an Amuna concert in New Jersey uh, as Girardi is tripling. And you know, I, I we probably oh. had, we probably had a transistor radio backstage, and nobody nobody has phones that could actually see a game. <laughs> and uh, eventually, I find out how amazing the game was. Steve Adelsberg's with us tonight. Is Opening Day? Listen. What do you think without fans, Ebbets Field's going to be like tonight in Brooklyn? You think uh, you think neighbors in the East Flatbush area will still be able to hear the crack of the bat? Uh, you know what do you think? Well,
9: I gotta tell you, it, it's not what it used to be then, but then again, it came back. You got empire going on. You got the Jackie Robinson apartment there. You got character there. But do, you I pe- do you think people? Do you think people?
1: Do you think people actually think that I don't realize that both of those teams moved out about sixty years ago? Do you think that that's what's <laughs> happening here? Uh, and then at the Polo Grounds, which will be empty tonight because the Giants are visiting the Dodgers. Um, you know, Steve, uh, one of the things that they did with both of those stadiums was take them down relatively quickly after both teams left. You know, when you, when you think about it, though, they didn't stay as landmarks for, for a while. Although I'm wrong about the Polo Grounds, right? Cause didn't the Mets play at the Polo Grounds the first couple of years?
9: I remember in 62, the miracle, the, the marvelous Mets with marvelous Marthornberry playing in the Polo Grounds. I remember in 62, my father got me a ball off Jim Hickman's back. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, and the ball's coming. It's a foul ball. And I say, this is coming right at us. And I'm going, hold it. I'm eight years old. I can't catch. I can't catch. <laughs> I duck under the seat. My father, Lovatron, catches the ball. Jim Hickman, ball. And you probably say, do you still have that ball? I would say, are you are kidding me? I lost it down the sewer two weeks later.
8: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
9: but we had on the team. We had on the team. We had on the team. I got people coming. over you know, yeah, like I mean, come me. on! Can I'm you on can you can you
1: tell the, the radio. Can, me, can you tell the but people can you tell the people in this school that we're trying to have a conversation thing. here? Please, I mean, Come on!
9: <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is that back in '62. That was when they won 40 games, right. won 20. Casey says, hey, "Can anyone play this game here?" Right. You know, <laughs> right. it was it was a number of But the one thing that we don't have today that we always had it every opening day. You nothing. Know, there's no matzah. Yeah, and,
1: matzah. And, and again, this is one of those myths. Steve Adelsberg is convinced that every opening day in New York is during Cholamoid Pesach. I think it's i think it's one of those things where, like, three out of every 15 are, but it feels like it's like that every year. <laughs> but, yes, there there have been opening days that you've been to and that I've been to where they eat matzah. The exception this year, of course, Steve, would be that if we were going tonight, we'd be bringing cheese blitzes along because <laughs> it's the nine days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but.
9: It, it, I have to say, but it was like, you know, opening day, we're all in first place. On yeah. my message, I I'm not a Mets fan a Yankee fan, as you know. Yeah. But I do congratulate the Mets fans because they're still in first place and undefeated.
1: Yeah, that's for sure.
9: Um, all right, listen,
1: you gave me some research the other day. We got to do this quickly, but I want to try to go through some of this stuff. The people who really are baseball fans, I think will find some of this stuff intriguing. You just mentioned uh, opening day of the Mets in 1962, and you said to me, that there was an original Met who was on the field in nineteen sixty two who went to the same high school as the greatest Jewish home run hitter of all time. So if, so I am on the Bronx. So I will right in the James Monroe High School, I think it was. So I will James Monroe high school. So I will my now I will now guess, I assume it's Ed Cranepool. Ed Cranepool is the guy, and the home run hitter, of course, is Hank Greenberg. Right, and the home run hitter was Hank Greenberg. Then I want to tell you something, and you did this last time. And you caused a real controversy. I don't think you realize how big a machlokas it is about this issue of whether Kofax was in shul on Yom Kippur in '65 or not. And I and again, I, I found the article. I found the Brian Murphy article where he literally describes um, where he literally describes the account uh, by Rabbi Bernie Raskis who insists that he was in Temple Aaron. That day, meaning Koufax was in Temple Aaron that day, and then of course he also quotes Jane Levy, who I always bring to your attention, who wrote the uh, biography of Koufax without Koufax's help. Remember, she wrote that without being right. able to, without being able to ask Koufax any questions. He refused to sit with her. But 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 I I just checked literally today in the middle of his chakras, <laughs> I I checked with Stanley Raskis, the nephew of Bernie Raskis. And he claims that Bernie always insisted Koufax was there, but I said to him in St. Louis? Yeah, Stanley's his nephew. So I called Stanley, So I called I, I call, That's a great fact. Yes, Steve, I, was, so he, I, he, so he, I wait, Steve, Stanley wait, was wait, beautiful. let me let me get to the point. Wait. So okay, I want so, to get to so, the point It's, so, your, show. So it's I, your show. So I so I called Stanley this morning in the middle of the and I say to him, just answer one question for me. Would you agree? Because obviously he's heard from Bernie all those years and he's familiar with what the biographer says. Would you agree that it's at least a serious machlokis, a 50-50 serious machlokis about whether Koufax was in shul or whether he was in his hotel room? And he said yes. You have to at least acknowledge that that Bernie insisted, but really you know, where he's not sure he saw him in the back. Then Bernie started saying he was at a different service, but he knew he was in the building. It's a little unclear. And obviously, Levy, based on accounts of Koufax's teammates, insisted that he was in his hotel room Mm -hmm. the entire day. So at least, Steve, with all the myths that you sometimes tell us when it comes to Major League (laughs) Baseball, at least acknowledge that it's a serious machlokas. Yeah, it
9: certainly is. Well, Stanley Raskus was the... Swimming head of the swimming waterfront, I can't Massad Oh, He was
8: the
9: man and, and and I and I wanted to play basketball and baseball and not go swimming. Wait, wait, Steve, a wait, wait, Steve, I had a wait, wait, doctor's Steve. notes from the infirmary. I <laughs> called it the Marpe <laughs> So I didn't have to go to I didn't have to go swimming.
1: Wait, in Masad Aleph, in Masada Alif, what they call a double play, just remind
9: me. see Luke. <laughs> it was a see Luke. <laughs>
8: I love
9: it. We had a Akhtar, it was a strike. We had a, we, used to, we used to shout in Kolea. It's no pitcher. <laughs> we have a. a, a uh. We had it was it was a great time, and we had to play the game in Hebrew. We played the game in Britain. Was, By and, the, way. And, and you ask anyone from Assad, anyone who went to Assad, will give you a a, a basis in Hebrew.
1: Unbelievable. By and the every, way,
9: and every Israeli will look at you. Are you are you in this planet? Where did you
1: get this from? Yeah, they wouldn't even have a clue what it is. By the way, a postscript to that story, because of the article I read, if Rabbi Feller, who I assume is from Chabad, who went to Kofax's room, you know, with the tefillin, that people know about that story where he actually made a presentation to him of tefillin and actually got into his hotel room, so he said, "It's amazing. How you know, many people didn't work on Yom Kippur because you took off Yom Kippur?" And Kofax apparently said to him. Do- doesn't anybody realize i don't pitch on Russia sunday either like that was his re- that was his response which i thought was unbelievable i didn't realize that he that he said that i thought it was a great quote
9: <laughs> you know if you-, if you remember from jane levy's book koufax claimed and probably rightfully so that walter Alston never would call him by his name right he would call he would call him the lefty right he just didn't want to look him in his face and uh you know, it was it was the big mystery in nineteen sixty five when the Minnesota Twins are playing in the Los Angeles Dodgers at game seven. And Koufax was didn't you know if or Drysdale was gonna pitch. and Colfax pitches on two days rest. Right. But the but he also ne- never announces the pitcher. Right. And he says he doesn't even say Co- he wouldn't even say Colfax's name. He says, We're going with the lefty, then we'll bring in Ronnie Drysdale. If we need help we'll take in Ron Perinowski. Remember Ron Perinowski? Sure, yeah. Whose roommate was Dick Raditz.
8: Right.
1: You know, you know you know what the signal was when they wanted Raditz in the bullpen, right? Well, um, Somebody would – the manager would put his hand all the way up in the air because he was like six
9: foot eight, right? Wasn't yeah, Raditz like 6'8"? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was true. He wanted the big and, guy. He wanted the big guy. But that when Kovacs pitches, he pitched a 2 nothing two-hitter in game seven. And then uh, that was like, you know, then 66, of course, was his last year. Right. He had a great year, but that was the World Series when they lost four straight to Baltimore. And um, and every and it was Arab Sucus when uh, when they played the World Series, Koufax played and Willie Davis had his three errors in one inning. Koufax had his game going, but he just lost all concentration and ended
1: up losing, ended up losing the game. And don't forget the famous Drysdale quote about Game One of the '65 oh, World Series. Best,
9: well, probably probably the best quote in baseball won the first game in Minnesota. When, when Olson comes to the mound and and Drysdale is like, you know, he's a, he's he's getting wh- he's getting whacked, gets the seven runs. and He looks at Olsen and says, "I guess you, I guess you would want me to be Jewish." Right, huh? I, I guess you
1: wish I was Jewish, right? <laughs> Steve Adelsberg's with us tonight's opening day, so we're doing a little baseball here. All right, very very late, but we got to do these quickly because you did give me some research. I thought I was right about this. You said the shot hurt around the world when Bobby Thompson won the pennant for the New York Giants. Uh, you said it was on a significant Jewish day. I thought you were, you know, uh, alluding to Rosh Hashanah. It was actually
9: Tzom G'dayah that day. It was, it was, a, it was the day after Rosh Hashanah. I
8: thought, it was, I thought it was Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, it was yeah, Tzom, Tzom like, I looked say, it so, up.
9: You, may, you, you know, you said before, like, oh, I'm going to nothing. This guy's Mister, you know, Mister Facts. I got to right. I, I look up this guy <laughs> to make sure. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know what? You know what was on Rosh Hashanah? You know what? You know what game was on Rosh Hashanah? The Bucky Dent <laughs> game was on Rosh Hashanah.
9: Yeah, yeah. yeah Bucky like, Dent
1: was, was the first the, day of Rosh Hashanah. In In fact, I'll never forget one of the reasons I was so angry about the Yankees losing the last game of the season and having to go to a playoff game was I said to myself, I can't believe this. We're going to miss the game because, you know, it's going to be Russia Shun. That was the last Sunday of the season in 1978. Uh, You asked me about the Mo Berg quote. What was the reaction when the spy, Mo Berg, who was a catcher, of course, uh, revealed that he uh, spoke seven languages? I'm assuming... You're going with the famous uh, he could speak seven languages but can't hit in any of them, right? I guess you I'm, got it. That's yeah. a great quote. It's a great <laughs> quote, and you attributed that to his teammates who actually said that. Right,
9: exactly. Which is very cool. You know, Mo, he could speak seven languages and That's not yeah. blinking. But was it? But, he can't hit in any of them.
1: But am I wrong? I thought he was a decent hitter. I guess I have to look it up. I don't even know. I he up. he
9: wasn't. It was. I mean, listen. You know, he was he, the intelligence you could just see by just reading his resume. Yeah, boy, oh, boy, that's an understatement. Um,
1: also, And one last thing I wanted to make sure to get to today because you did give me a list that's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's never-ending. We're not going to get to everything, but I did want to touch on this one. You said to me uh, when we had the preview of, of this conversation that there are five Jewish Major League Baseball Hall of Famers. Now, I'm assuming, give me a second to say this. I'm assuming that because really the only two are Koufax and Greenberg that you're talking about people who are not players who are in the Hall of Fame. Am I right or wrong?
9: No, we got Al Rosen.
1: Al Rosen. Why is he not on the list?
9: Al Rosen, Al Rosen is there. And on the list, then I'm with my friend my, my, my friend Mike. And I say to him, there's five. And all of a sudden, I can't come up with a fifth. I go, i got to get well, the Well, who's the guy,
1: fourth? Man. Is there a fourth?
9: Four, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to think for the second, Rod Carew. Rod Carew, of
1: course. How can I forget Rod? I remember when he converted to Judaism. How can I forget that he's a Hall
9: of Famer? <laughs> By the way, you know, also converted early on. Elliot a, Maddox, a, and his agent was Dave Fishoff. Was Elliot Maddox? Elliot. Maddox I didn't know Fishoff a, was his agent. He was he, Elliot Maddox booked him into Camp Tagola back in the seventies. Wow. You know what? <laughs> and like you know, yeah, I'm sorry. And, uh, and he books. He books. Well, he books Elliot Maddox. It was his first booking, and, and then he also he also got him Wendell Ladner. Wendell Ladner played for our beloved Nets. Of blessed he, memory, of blessed memory. Exactly. What was and the he, What
1: was he, the airline that crashed at Wendell Ladner? Oh, that's a good one. Should that's I tell the, you? I mean, Should I tell you? Because I please. I remember where I was standing when I heard the news as a kid. It was Eastern Airlines, and the reason it crashed was a major uh, wind that, that swept through New York City all of a sudden on an on an afternoon. And Wendell Ladner, the New York Net, at that time the York Net, uh, was right. was among those who perished that the... day.
9: And, exa- and I remember the owner of Camp Tagola, Rabbi Abelman, I love to show him, he says, what do I tell the kids? I can't to believe me. <laughs> the guy dies in a plane crash. Wait, he's wait a second. Tomorrow.
1: He died after he was up there or he died when he was scheduled? No, before. <gasps> before. And they had announced that he's coming?
9: Yeah, they announced he's coming. Oh, my and gosh. I remember because it was in Sacket Lake. And remember, Rabbi Appleman said, well, I'm going to tell the kids. I go, what are you, forget about the kids. What are they telling his, his wife?
1: <laughs> wow. That, but I hear that. That's devastating. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, That's interesting. Wow, next yeah, Fish Off interview, I have more material. This is great. <laughs> you got it. So everybody out there, do me a favor. Email me if you know who the fifth Jew is. And Steve means real player, not just announcers and owners. He means yeah, a yeah. real Jew. I'm, I'm
9: right. not going to give you Mel Allen.
1: Right, you know? we have Al Rosen, Rod Carew, Hank Greenberg, and Sandy Koufax. And, and, he, and yeah. Steve thinks there's a fifth. By the way, you know what ended Elliot Maddox's career, or at least you know really did him in, was uh, Shea Stadium. When the Yankees played yeah, with the yeah. the drain it came over in, St- in seventy four and seventy five,
9: right? They played they played in Shea Stadium. Hey,
1: can I tell you a seventy five story? My my uh, my late mm. my, my late brother, uh, who was such a great older brother, takes me and my mm. younger brother to Bat Day nineteen seventy five oh. in Shea oh, okay. in Shea Stadium, right? And, right. And, and 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 of course in nineteen seventy five, there is only one bat that now remember how Bat Day worked. The way bat yes. worked in the old days was they had every player on a bat. In other words, there was a box of yes. bo- of this bat, there was a box of this, and, and if you got the right box, you got a good player, and you, you could get a bad player. So what happens? Every kid walking into that stadium wants one player, and who is it? Bobby Bonds, right? It was the one year Bobby Bonds played for the Yankees he was traded for Bobby Mercer. He was traded for Bobby exactly. Mercer. So Bobby Bonds. We walk into the stadium with our friends, who are also tagging along as you know part of this whole group. And my brother's taking us, and they they are taking out uh, uh, bats from the box. They hand it to the people who were with, and it's a Jim Mason bat. Do you remember
9: Jim Mason? Jim Mason, I remember? <laughs> I I mean, he was an got, awful. You got a Jim he, Mason bat. You know whose bat I got one. Wait, wait, one, one second. Let me finish.
1: So, so Jim okay. Mason bat, and and, and he's obviously – I mean, if you would rate the Yankee Bowl players of that era, he would be at the bottom of the list. And I'm like – I'm a kid, and I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to get a Jim Mason bat. When it comes to me and my brother, they open up a new box, and they oh, ha- and they hand each of us a Bobby Bonds bat. Really? Post, post, <laughs> really? postscript you know, they, they, postscript by the way those great bats postscript to they the, were really yeah they're they fantastic bat. they were fantastic bats postscript to the story and we used the bats all the time by the way postscript to the and I even took it to camp i remember my mother writing my name on it postscript to the story and i still have the bat by the way this is 1975 i still have it postscript to the story because of the aforementioned David Fischoff, I am at a baseball writers meeting in 1992, a dinner, baseball writers' dinner where they announced right. the, the MVP and this and that. and the person getting the MVP is Barry Bonds. He's up on the dais, right. Who am I sitting next to at my table? Bobby Bonds? And Are I, you kidding and, me? I oh. and I tell him and I, and I tell him this story. And it was just great. It was just great. <laughs> you
9: got you, you got Bobby Bonds' butt. No, by yep. butt I got? Don't tell me Mickey Mantle. Mantle. Don't tell me Mickey. No, Mantle. I did better. I got his legs. I got one of them. We used to call him the Mantle legs. Roger Repose. Who was that? He was one of Mantle's legs. mean, used in the last inning. They used to bring in Mantle, but they used to take Mantle out of center field, and they were put in. They were putting these guys who Mantle was. I know, and always had tough knees. And Roger Pose is one of his legs, and that's the bat I got. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, one, the one bat day I went to. I don't know if I'd rather. Great, I not if I'd rather. Wait, I'd great...
1: rather have that or Jim Mason. I don't know. <laughs>
9: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that. But all I know is it was a great sight when everyone they started doing this, and everyone raised their bats. The whole stadium I love that. The that was, was, a that was great.
1: Seventh inning stretch. You'd raise your bat in the yeah. seventh inning stretch. Uh, who was the only Yankee to hit a home run in the 1976 World Series? 76 World Series, okay. 76 World Series, we well, lost four straight. That
9: well, was the famous controversy when when they asked Sparky Anderson, can you compare Thurman Munson to uh, Johnny, Johnny Bench? Bench. Right. And he says, don't embarrass Thurman Munson. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who the only, ooh, that's a the only, The
1: only Yankee home run in that World Series was hit
9: in game four. Who hit it? He lost 4-3 that game. Jim Catfish started the game. He started I game was, four? He, I, you know, he started game four? I
1: don't remember that. The only yes. home run hit in that World Series by a Yankee was by Jim Mason.
9: Jim Mason, yeah, isn't <laughs> that, that is, funny? Great. Isn't that funny? Uh, that is, that is, that is everything. Now, you know, what we like to say with Ralph goals we always say "Afta var koreba McGrath.
8: Yeah, nothing so happens true. by accident. So yeah. true.
9: <laughs> this is All a right. British
1: having fun. A- as you know? can see, we're way over time here, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I got I, I to wrap it up. Steve Adelsberg, a happy. Opening day to you. What is your prediction for the Manhattanites versus the Brooklynites tonight? What's your prediction?
9: Uh, you got. I'm a Brooklyn guy now. I'm a Brooklyn. Brooklyn
1: so you're going guy. with the Dodgers. You're going Dodgers, <laughs> yeah, you and, and you can't walk in. There're no fans allowed. But you may walk <laughs> by Ebbets Field tonight.
9: <laughs> yeah, I, I walk by to Korea. I won't
1: play against the Korea. That's how significant the place Emmett's Field is to you, huh? Field, come on!
9: It's
1: like you know. By the way, folks. By the way, folks. He's kidding. I know it's the nine days. We gotta be careful. He's kidding. Uh, and who do you who do you predict when the Highlanders go up against the Senators? Tonight in Washington, what is your uh, your prediction? Well,
9: it depends. Is Jack Chesborough throwing out the first bull? Jack bowl? Chesborough. <laughs> <laughs> if he throws out the first bull, we, Yan-
1: we got the Yankees going.
8: <laughs>
1: I heard Cy Young himself may show up to the game tonight. That's what
9: I'm told. <laughs> By the way, I'm only upset one thing. I can't go out to the field to dream.
1: I was just going to bring that, that up. And remember you and I discussed this that, that about actually going out for that game that they were planning? I assume it was. Right. I assume it was postponed. I I don't know what would
9: happen. I don't it. know. I heard the White Sox and the Cubs are going to be playing. Oh.
1: Chicago, Chicago's
9: like three hours outside. So they're not going to bring the Yankees in the end. Wow, they're not bringing the not bringing the Yankees. So which, which is you know, but hey, my, my, I got to tell you, you know, great
8: you, great place to visit.
1: Yeah, I know Rams. you've been there, and I and I'm jealous. <laughs> but but what was funny was when you and I first discussed it. In conversation, I realize when I look at the calendar, it's my mother's yard site. And you and I were like, you know, I don't know, there's something mystical about that, making a million, making a million <laughs> yeah, a I field of dreams line. and going back to, you know, my mother would be so thrilled for me. And at the same time, we'd be dominating there. It would be very interesting, you know.
9: <laughs> and she'll probably, and she'll pack you a matzo sandwich. <laughs> even, in, even in August, huh? Even in August. Even in August. You got to keep a tradition. Missouri counts. You got to figure out. Steve
1: Adelsberg enjoy your visit to ebbets field tonight no, uh, it's i will great be I was talking to you. I will you be, bring light to everybody i will receiving. be thinking of you i will be thinking of you when i turn on my tv this evening and the senators are playing uh, the uh, the murderers row the new york yankees uh, when they're taking on each other in this uh, contest by the way you know it's funny now that you told me this whole story about the owner of the Senate of the Senators, the o- the owner of the Nationals. I really didn't. I I, I never really in- liked the Nationals. Like it's one of those teams that you have, that you have a slight hatred for. And then when they got yeah. Bryce Harper, you know, whose whole yeah. attitude I can't take, I really started to dislike them. And now, and now, like I had to do with with Robert Kraft, I have to at least acknowledge that you know that, yeah. that, that the Patriots are you know are something, especially with what he does for our community. And, yeah. And now that you told me this news, I have to have a much more positive attitude about the Senators
9: or the Nationals. Right. I know it's football, but I can give you one last story about Robert Kraft.
8: Yeah. Great yeah,
9: story. Sure. I'm, in, I'm, with, I'm with Rabbi Heshe Billet. We're going to Israel together. We're online at the control and going into Israel. And sure enough, who's sitting in front of, in front of, who's standing in front of us online is Myra Kraft, aloha shalom, right. Robert Kraft's wife.
8: Right. Great lady.
9: Sweet as can be. Really, the players, the players wore a patch when she passed away.
8: She I remember always
9: that. Concerned. And so I'm talking, I said, and I started talking, I recognize. I started talking to her, and, you know, the good rabbi, Rabbi Billet goes, who's that? I go, that's Robert Kraft's wife. Right. She's going on a UJ tour, very Zionistic, right, really right. a supporter. Half of okay, his Israel he activities he are because of her. Billet goes, Billet goes to Mrs. Kraft and goes, so Mrs. Kraft, you're talking to a jet fan. He looks at me, and middle of the conversation, she turns around and stops talking to me. I say, Mrs. Kraft, I have to tell you, I respect that. I would do the same thing <laughs> if, what you could, you were, if you were a patriot, an ordinary patriot, fan. <laughs> but I respect that. She turns around she smiles. And I'm saying, what do you think? You think Bill looks so good here? He's a giant fan. You know, go, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: What do you think? You're in friendly country here? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the way, <laughs> I, I got to thank listener David. Here's what he claims. Number one, he claims Al Rosen is not in the Hall of Fame. That's number one. Not that's what he a claims.
9: For MVP, I got check
8: that out. Trust me,
1: tru- trust, trust me, Steve. This conversation is going to go on forever. Don't worry. We, we have pl- yeah. we have plenty of addendums coming up to this conversation. The other yeah. thing he says is, do you know that Lou Boudreau's mother was Jewish? Yeah, Lou Boudreau was who, and who is his son-in-law? Uh wait, 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 wait. Rams wait.
9: play to win thirty games. <sighs>
1: Louboudreau's son in law was Denny McLean?
9: Denny McLean. Denny yeah.
1: McLean, right. Wow. Yeah,
9: yeah.
1: And who is Lubey's Bobby? Who, who's, Bobby, who's, Bobby who's Bobby? Who's Bobby Valentine's uh, father in law? Bobby Thompson? Maybe Bobby Thompson, I think.
9: <laughs> oh,
1: no, Ralph Branca. Ralph Branca. <laughs>
9: Ralph Branca went to Mount Vernon High School with my mother. I'm looking through a yearbook, and I'm saying, Ma, you know Ralph Branca? He signed your yearbook. It goes, yeah, I remember him. What about him? Come on, this is Ralph Branca. This is a Brooklyn Dodger. She actually right. had a signature in the yearbook from him? And this his, his Ralph Branca signature, and he had a brother, John, also on the baseball team, John Branca, who was from Mount Vernon.
1: Wow, that's cool. Yeah. There was somebody else I read about in, in um, the high school that Hank Greenberg went to. Who was it that they said, hang on a second, who did I have there on that? There was someone else who went to that high school that... Uh, now nah, this is going to drive me nuts, frankly. Give me yeah. give me a second. Hang on. Give me a second. Yeah. So, Bobby Valentine's father-in-law is Ralph Branca. So that's number one. And then we oh, said God. Hank Greenberg <laughs> High School. <laughs> Hang on, everybody. I know you're waiting for Charlie Harari, everybody. We're going to get to Charlie in a minute. There's no... T- Charlie's my boy. Hey, Charlie. Hey, Charlie's
9: looking to there, there is enough.
1: no... Good, oh, that's true. He'd, appre- he'd appreciate this conversation. There, There is no... Um, um, uh, Michael Fragan is not presenting spin class today, so don't worry. You'll hear Charlie in his entirety. Um, so where am I here? James Monroe High School. James Monroe High School. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. I'm trying to see. What was the uh, – oh, our thing was that uh, – who did we say again? Who did we say? No, who did we say went there? Greenberg. Oh, Ed Cranepoel, right, Ed Cranepoel, okay. Hey. Crane pool.
9: <laughs> Ed crane, we, you know, we used to we used to give the sports report in Camp Maasad. You had to do it in Hebrew, and it was Ed pool back then. So we used to call him. We used to call him Chaim, I don't know why Chaim, but Chaim Manof Brecha.
1: Oh, Crane Crane Pool. Crane pool. Uh, oh my gosh, to,
9: Manof Brecha. We used to call him.
1: <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. You know he. Uh, you you know my friend you know, my friend you know you know all of our our friend uh, uh, Ding of Sookie and Ding you know Ding Golding yes so his father worked with Ed Cranepool for many many years at the desk next to each other um, uh, you know it, whatever, broker? whatever brokerage firm they were in yeah they, it, yeah he yeah. was very very was- close with Ding's father he was very close with him. right
9: them. I believe it was that f- brokerage firm that was Edwards and Hanley <laughs> how
6: do Around you know old- that. How do you know
1: that?
9: That's great. It's like, you know, as my my father would say to you, and he said to me all the time, if you only knew your Gamora the way you know your sport. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Correct. That's very true. So now my client's saying to me, if you only knew your taxes the way you know your sport, that would
1: be better. So that's that's what they say nowadays, huh? Uh, Ed Cranepool, Marvin Miller went to Monroe. Marvin
9: Marvin Miller. But Marvin Miller, he, he, every baseball player, should, should be should be should be celebrating That's an, or remembering Marvin
1: on his yard site. That's an understatement. Uh, so that he, an understatement. He went right. to and Monroe. Never,
9: they, the owners despised him, because, but meanwhile, he, he put he gave them a living. Yeah.
1: And by, and by the way, a baseball, a and, by, and by the way, really every athlete in every sport because of the makeup, right. because of the nature of different sports, there's only a limit to how much progress the players can make. But only whatever progress they have made in all of the major sports is because of him. And what he did with baseball. Right. So, all right, right, Steve, uh, Steve. Happy opening day. You got it, my friend. Make all some, the best. Make some well, pop. No F- hot dogs. Healthy, no hot dogs tonight. You cannot watch the Yankee uh, game with a hot dog. But Can't you watch
9: the hot dog. The first hot dog I remember. I'll keep you on all day. The first game with Yankees, Philadelphia, in Yankee Stadium when they first started to sell kosher hot dogs. The Adelsburg boys, David, Sammy, Avi, Sarita, my daughter, didn't Make it. We went to eat hot dogs. We had forty hot dogs that night. <laughs> we went crazy. Which, sta- which stadium? Which stadium was that in? It was Yankee Stadium. Oh, in Yankee an Stadium. Game. It was an interleague game: Yankees versus the Phillies.
1: What year was that? Like
9: nineteen so, ninety-eight? Something, because it was, it was it was the first year um, that they had interleague play. Oh, so
1: ninety-seven. Ninety-seven was the first yeah. year of interleague play. I was right. at, I'm sure you were there as well. I was at the first Yankee Met
8: game. Oh, that, that was like you know,
9: hey, it was that he had to be there. You know what I mean? It, it,
8: but that uh, was you know, a yeah. that
1: was a terrible game for the Yankees. They got yeah, shut out.
9: Yeah. yeah. Uh, hey, you have a great day.
1: What's the menu tonight? Popcorn? What will it be when you watch Opening Day? Will it be popcorn? Will it be? Uh... Oh, uh,
9: probably my wife uh, yelling, did you take out the garbage yet? <laughs> that, that's what's on the menu? <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be on the menu. <laughs> garbage yet. Uh, Maybe some
1: popcorn, a tall soda, a tall drink maybe, it, you think? You got to have a drink. Yeah, you got to drink. And
9: it's like, hey, <laughs> it's just sitting there and just saying it's baseball, and I could be a boy once again. After, the, after they
1: score their second run tonight, will you be texting me about how amazing the Yankees are this year? Will, will, you, will you start as early as tonight or not?
9: Oh yeah, we got This is it. We got to start early. I mean, listen, okay, tell, you know. Steve, it won't I, be the same, but we're back. I'll we'll take it. I hope you have reception
1: in Sackett Lake. Do you have the rabbit ears on the TV? Do you have reception up there in the Catskills? <laughs> no, hope.
9: I have it from. I have from. I used to watch a giant football. Game oh, okay, good. On channel three on channel three from Hartford, Connecticut. Right. It was a blackout. Just making sure.
8: A- because you I, had
9: all the snow on your TV. I
1: remember I remember when we were in the bungalow colony in the 70s, we tried our hardest to, to get Yankee reception. It was very difficult. Oh, be, be careful. To, Steve, if you need updates, just text me. I'll let you know what the scores are <laughs> if you're having <laughs> trouble good. with the television. <laughs> 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 Thanks
8: so much. <laughs> I,
9: by the way, I have to say one thing before we go. Yeah. There's one, this one guy who would run the phone today with us. And he, he, he had a, we had a lot of fun with him. He's showing, a I got a, a good phone, Chaim Lobo. Silver, he's silver. It was like you know, we would have had a lot of fun. Big Steve, Yankees, you know, big Yankee fan.
1: Steve, he would have loved this conversation. He would have loved right. it. And right. boy, do we mi- and we miss Lobo every single day, every right. single day. I
9: think we should have a, We should have just a, a broadcast just on Lobo stories. By the way, you-,
1: you, you know, it's funny you say that. There, obviously, as you can imagine, he had so many appearances on this show that we. I mean, we have so many of them archived. When he when he did the march appearances, it was usually about our fundraisers supporting us, etc. But when he did the appearances in August and September, it was usually a pre-Rosh Hashanah message about chesed, being, doing things for people. kind. And I said to myself just the other day, it's funny you mentioned this, I said to myself the other day, I should dig out one of those archives from this time of year and play it and let people hear the message that he gave about what we need to do to support people who are in need. Uh, and right. and you know how good he was at that. He
9: was he was like yes. he didn't just talk the talk on that. He
1: walked the walk on that. So and he, and you know
9: he wanted to do one thing in the O B B L. He played when Sackett Lake played. Played uh, Julian's a golden uh, a golden passion wherever the Lobos were that year. Yeah, when we played him, he wanted to do one thing. He wanted to be the umpire. He wanted <laughs> to be the umpire.
8: <laughs> I remember. <laughs>
9: yeah,
1: I see. I see. You've already started the stories about Lobo segments.
9: <laughs> <laughs> he had to be the umpire. He's the greatest. And I'll leave you. I'll leave you one one great story. He was the umpire. I've told the story in the past that Lobo, of course, made this bad call, and they, and his and his guys wanted to kill him. Oh yeah. Um, Oh, so the next year, we're playing the game, and everyone says, Lobo's not umping. No Lobo. Okay. They got a guy, a good guy, an early guy, a guy named, from the younger little I'm sure your listeners know him, Moshe isosha Great guy.
8: Yeah. I know Moshe. Yeah.
9: Sure. Right. He's the guy. He comes out. Right. The first batter, now, you know, the first batter, he calls ball four. We have a thirty-minute argument, and it went, thirty. This is before they decide to go for twenty bucks and higher, higher umpire. Right, thirty-minute argument, and all of a sudden, Harvey Dax, he's gonna probably call me. And goes, how do you remember this? Harvey Dax his whole argument, goes, I just want to say, I know Moshe Sasha, he's the Baal Feeler in Floppish, and I believe he could be trusted. What? That's, that was the conclusion? That was the conclusion. I look at him, I go, that really makes me feel good. Okay, we can play baseball,
8: guys. I love it.
9: <laughs> Steve, thank you. All the best, my friend. All the Steve
1: best. Steve Adelsberg, everybody. Tonight's opening day, and we found a way even during the nine days to commemorate it. Achei to Israel and our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Round the we're on the web at on the Nachamusegle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. And that'll wrap up JM and the AM for this Thursday. Um, Charlie Harari in his entirety, because Michael Fragen is not presenting spin class today, so Charlie Harari coming up in its entirety. Our full Thursday schedule. Don't forget, tomorrow, in addition to all of our Friday features, my father's the rebroadcast of my father's eulogy, the Lababa Chereba, tomorrow morning starting at 7:15 AM Eastern time. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Alham School reminding you. Remember to past, live the present and trust the future.